Hello and welcome to Decomposing Worm, a worm analysis podcast. That's Clarence. He's the first-time reader and literary expert. And that was Matthias. He's read the story before. In this 12-episode series, we're using critical theory to explore the superhero web serial Worm from a high-level perspective, covering Worm in six 300,000-ish word chunks. Mm-hmm. And today is part two of book three, Perspectives. So here we'll be applying the literary theories to Worm, kind of combing through arcs 15 through 17 with the lens of a couple of theorists, um, a couple of theorist theories, and we'll kind of go into how we're using them, how we're kind of, you know, sticking everything together later on. Mm -hmm. Uh, So of course, if you haven't read arcs 15 through 17 yet, please do. This is a full spoilers discussion. And of course, you should probably listen to the last episode as well, because we'll probably be referring back to uh, what we talked about there. Yes. Okay, so first we're going to go uh, do our character studies. Uh, I'm going to be talking about uh, Marquis, and again, I'm sticking to waffling between Marquis and Marquis uh, as I please. <laughs> and uh, Clarence, uh, who are you doing for your character study? Um, I I went a slightly different tact. I'm I'll be looking at Regent and uh, Skitter in their kind of like mm-hmm. dynamic. Um, yes, and then we'll be. Uh, going through our, our essays um, and, and the theories that we'll be talking about. I'm focusing on uh, Gramsci uh, and the notions of uh, dominance and hegemony. And Clarence is? Um, I, I will be looking at um, the sublime, but it's it, I kind of work my way there with um, some new criticism and then a little bit of like kind of situating that in the contemporary, um, you know, definition of like literature and the canon and everything. Um, and then we'll finish off uh, at, at the very end. And of course, between everything, we'll have our little bits just to mm-hmm. just to to, to to space out the very long. Um, what do, what do, what do you call those? Not diatribes. Diatribes are are always hostile. What's the what's the are word they? for just? Are diatribes always hostile? Is it the tribe bit so. of it? Um, probably because the die is probably just talk, right? Yeah. Because the dialogue. I mean, it's not monologue, right? Because we are speaking back. I guess it's just a back. dialogue. Hmm. Hmm. Well, regardless, uh, let's yeah. let's start with our character <laughs> studies. Uh, all right, so I'll start off. Um, as mm-hmm. I said, I'm covering Marquis, uh, and I have a, a couple of things to talk here uh, to, to talk about here. Um, so, so just to, to start off with summarizing him, uh, Marquis is described as this handsome man with a sort of intentionally disheveled look. And that intentional dishevelment is kind of his entire persona. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's intentionally casual, intentionally informally formal. Uh, and he has this history of being actually a, a pretty terrible villain, um, it, like killing a lot of people, but oh, okay. having very strict rules about who he kills. He doesn't kill uh, women or children. In fact, his rules are so strong that they withstood Jack um, testing him, mm-hmm. and he he yeah he didn't break the rule even even with Jack. Uh, so that's that's kind of a state testament to just how strong his um, his convictions are. Yeah. That yeah. said, uh, he is very he can be very brutal, um, and um, we we see him kind of using a lot of pretty like messy and um, I, I actually I don't know if messy is the right word. Not dirty tactics either, but like. They very, feel wrong. Yeah, they're very like, um, you know, manipulative. I yeah, would say. he's like, very yeah, yeah. But also like just 
painful. Like I'm, I'm yeah. talking about the fight against uh, that, that, that very last fight um, of his of his career before the Brockton De- Bay Brigade uh, captures him, right? With uh, and, mm-hmm. and Carol's interlude. Uh, there's that part where when they first start fighting him, right? He's. I, I want to point out also while we're describing his character how much of just a classic supervillain he is. Like he's he is <laughs> the 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 perfect suave supervillain and yeah, yeah. um i i wish we we uh get more of of him in in his prime um where he's in a black silk silk uh bathrobe next to his leather armchair uh reaching for his wine uh, in his mansion it's just such an image <laughs> uh, it's it's wonderful you know i picture him at the the, the end of like a, a staircase or whatever yeah, even though that's yeah. probably not realistic uh it, anyway, it's just yeah, and but he's also like quipping as well in the mm-hmm. supervillain way. Um, when he breaks um, Manpower's foot, I believe, or maybe it might be Flashbangs. I'm not sure. Um, but he goes, "Oh, broke your foot? How clumsy!" When he's the one that did it, and it's yeah, like, yeah, it's, it's probably, very like, anyway smooth. Yes, yes, mm-hmm. I love that. But so the point I was getting to is uh, when they first start attacking him, he. His first move is to turn himself into a pincushion, basically, with these needle-thin spikes of bone, which is just a very kind of unsettling image to, to picture. Yeah, yeah. Also, I that guess... bathrobe is punctured many yeah. times now. I don't know what happened to it. I don't know if he's fighting naked. He probably has but... just like this whole li- like closet full of bathrobes just prepared. Yes, yes. Well, I, I wonder, it's not described in the text, but I wonder if he, you know, like makes bone armor or something because that would make sense kaiser did that so because mm. um, it's his but, bones isn't it mm-hmm. yes yeah, i think that's yes. what makes it even more unsettling mm-hmm. is that it's like he's fighting with his body yes but like not i don't know it's just it's it's I don't, bone should be within people's <laughs> bodies you know yeah yeah well and the thing that makes it even more horrible is that he also manipulates other people's bones and i think mm-hmm. that's like like his casual use, as soon as bone is exposed, right? With like with manpower, he reshapes it. It's just he's limited to reshaping. But like, goddamn, that's that's yeah, bad that's... enough as is. The, the, the bone is like the most permanent, um, I guess, organ. It's not the right term, but organ in the body. Right? Yeah, you're kind of you're kind of stuck if you don't have them. You know? Yeah. Very like, it, like Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, even your organs can. Your, your 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 wet organs can heal, but mm-hmm. bones, if they're shaped wrong, they have to be broken again to heal the correct way, which is yeah. interesting. Anyway, the, the so the point I was getting to with um his his tactics, right, is uh, once there's splinters of bone everywhere, he turns all of them into these uh, basically like spiked uh, caltrops, right, mm-hmm. with needle thin spikes and uh, carol thinks about how stepping on them can can pierce through her boot right and it's almost like such a i don't i don't want to call it petty but it's not it's not like a a grand you know uh, later on he's he's fighting with a a scythe made of bone right and that's like i don't know it seems more uh superficially honorable than covering the ground and and small spikes that make you you know bleed a lot when you step on them right yeah it's, yeah, it's kind of underhanded tactics. Yeah, yeah. And there's a part, of course, um, where a skull behind uh, Carol basically puts a bone blindfold over her. Oh, yeah. Uh, other things like that. Um, that was a very cool moment in that fight scene. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I could, yeah, I could picture it, too. It just looks kind of wrong. Yeah. 
yeah, so so mm. he seems to he fights in these like this this variety of like performance and also using every single advantage he can mm-hmm. at the same time, uh, which I find it's just an interesting juxtaposition how he he cultivates an image of himself as the formal and classic and um, yeah, you'd think that there's like specific rules of engagement when right. kind of interacting with. With his like you know enemies, nemesis is nemes- nemeses. Nemeses, yeah. Um, but his only real rules is the not killing women or children yeah, thing. Yeah. Everything else, because kind of whatever. Yeah, he kind of like establishes. He establishes himself as a rules man, which I feel like mm-hmm. gives him gives him the opportunity to kind of like exploit that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yes. Uh, so yeah. Well, it's interesting that he doesn't like. He does. He doesn't break his rules to his advantage, which yeah. I, I think is interesting. Uh, he, like, I, I think he kind of in in the section that we see him with um, in in the birdcage with Amelia, um, he kind of places himself in a vulnerable position in order to manipulate his daughter into getting better, which is such a convoluted yeah. Yeah. Um, passageway of of. Logic, where it becomes very difficult to under to to ascertain whether something is is good or not. Um, so, it's, I I want to pull out a quote, which is basically one of his first quotes of uh, his interlude, and I think it basically, you know, I I, I really like it when when Wildbo does this. We just a character says what at the very least they think they are. Mm. So he says, "My girl, I'm not a good man. I have rules I follow, but that doesn't make me good." At best, it's one virtue among many I've failed to acquire. I'm rough around the edges, whatever I might play at, and that's plain enough to see to anyone who pays attention. I grew up in hard circumstances, and it's taken me a long time to work past that and earn earn the respect I get. And I would give that up if you needed it. You don't know me. You're family, Amelia. Mm. So uh, this is is the other main notion of... um, of Marquis, there's there's basically uh, there, there's basically three main facets to his character to to look at in these sections that we see. Yeah. His rules, uh, the way that he always keeps a complete control over his external emotions and his attachment to a family in Amelia in the specific. I guess he's very like Machiavellian. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In that sense, yeah, I didn't really think about it quite as much before, but. He sort of like fits into that. Yeah, yeah. In mentality. in his birdcage interlude, he focuses a lot on uh, power and maintaining power. And mm. while he does have you know an external desire in Amelia, and I think we'll we'll talk about that a little bit um, later. Uh, he he does that is that is his main focus, but his secondary focus, which is almost as as important is just maintaining power and even, you know, using every means at dis- disposal, including his own daughter to maintain that. Mm-hmm. But also the power is not like, I don't know what he wants to do with it other than maintain power. Right. His, his cell block is apparently pretty peaceful, right? That's the yeah, intention. Yeah. Um, and yeah, he has that very Machiavellian um, train of thought of inciting rebellion just so he can put it down. Right. Yeah, yeah. And kind of like the controlled, you know, exterior and that sort of thing and like mm-hmm. not really trusting who he has around him. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
um, a, a bit of a tangent before we get into that that second point of uh, him controlling his emotions all the time. Um, I find it very interesting that in the birdcage, everyone uses their cape names, mm-hmm. uh, even though none of them are costumed. Yeah, because none of, they're all like in the same outfits, or, mm-hmm. aren't they? Yeah, yeah, they're all in prison outfits, you know, maybe mildly customized. Yeah. Uh, You know, maybe there's a few that, like, have a power that gives them essentially a costume, Mm -hmm. right? But other than that, they, yeah, they they see each other's faces and yet they always refer to each other in the context of of pair humans. Well, I assume because it's like mm -hmm. they've entered that space because of what they have done in the pair human, like, in their Mm -hmm. kind of caped lives, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like one thing that gives them control over themselves mm-hmm. is using those names. You know what I mean? Yeah, they, it's an identity that, that they get to decide. Yeah, yeah, because they're already sort of like living this this life of of like material attrition. You know, mm-hmm. living um, in the birdcage. So I think any any kind of ability to ability to exact. And kind of like take over some sort of power mm-hmm. of themselves. I think. Also, they all yeah. like know each other by those names, you know. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like a yeah. Well, mm-hmm. I, I find your your point interesting about the control um, over themselves. I like. I think you know they they go into the birdcage right mm-hmm. and lose every other external identifying factor of themselves yes. except for their power yeah. and their name. Right. Uh, you know, they're wearing all the same clothes. They live in, you know, similar places. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, although the cells are the same. And so, yeah, the only identifying factor is their power. And so I think naturally they would pick the name that corresponds to that power yeah. rather than, you know, whatever the, the unique name from, from birth is. Yeah. Well, because their civilian identity has become irrelevant at this point. Mm-hmm. That's, that's true. Because their full identity of their, like, their daily lived experience is themselves with their their power in a community that is solely pe- like people like solely yeah. other pair humans you know yeah yeah uh additionally just a, another complicating factor is that um uh marquis does call amelia amelia rather than panacea that's true and i think i i think probably in the birdcage their civilian names their birth names are probably very often used in that private language, right? Mm-hmm. Only for close friends or like lovers and stuff like that. I, which I think is, it's interesting that it's kind of a, a reversal where the cape persona becomes the public and the civilian perform uh, becomes the private. Well, I guess it always was that, but even more so now. Yeah, yeah, and but even more so. Where I, I, I guess what I'm what I'm trying to get at is that the cape persona becomes the public that the. the Identity of which they interact with the public and the civilian is only for, um, it's almost like an alter ego. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. They've kind of like had that switch. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, that's that's the end of that tangent. Um, it went a little bit longer than I Sorry. Would, but, um, so uh, his, his other, Marquis' other main thing is this, this control over his exterior, this complete control over how other people will see him mm-hmm. and so there's that one point where he he talks about using his power right when he um snaps the bone it says there is mind shattering pain yeah for a moment before it fades which is just 
rather intense. That is. That's that's a lot to take, you know. And he does it seemingly constantly.、Mm-hmm. And there is no sign that anyone knows about the amount of pain he gets. There, there's not a point where someone says, "Oh, he doesn't feel," you know, the pain of his bones breaking. Yeah. But yeah. there's never a point where they're like, "That's gotta hurt" or something、yeah. like that. He's like built his entire. Persona against of of not being able like not showing any weakness at all.、Mm-hmm. So we kind of like ah there's ah that's ah that's so much. Yeah, and so that extends into every other part of his his personality、mm-hmm. as well.、Uh, anytime he feels surprised, he suppresses it. Anytime、uh, he's concerned, he suppresses it. Anytime he doesn't know how other people should you know how he should be reacting to other people, he suppresses it and just. Gives a a rote、uh, tactic, right? He just smiles yeah, and says nothing. Yeah, I remember us and、mm-hmm. chatting about that. It's it's. I feel like it's kind of a powder keg, you know, like waiting、mm-hmm. to burst. Actually, powder kegs don't burst. Do they? Do they? They explode, right?、Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I don't know. It seems it seems he needs some sort of outlet to kind of manage this. I feel like you know.、Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah, I wonder where all that reaction to the to the mind shattering pain goes. I mean, maybe that's why he murders people.、Hmm. So, you know, you gotta find catharsis. You gotta find catharsis somewhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I suppose. Well,、uh, that leads me into、uh, my next point. Well, I, I guess the the final thought I want to you know say is that because of how he controls this expression and cultivates his persona. Well, internally, you know, we see that there's actually, you know, multiple conflicts and things like that going on internally. Externally, he always kinds of seems exactly the same.、Mm-hmm. Um, there's not a point where he seems exceptionally, you know, happy or angry or, you know, maybe during the the Brockton Bay Brigade fight, he's like a little bit more serious, but otherwise, he's always the same. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the the final section I want to talk about is is family and his relationship to Amelia, which is、mm-hmm. interesting in that he's both being pr- pragmatic and practical about, but also is almost I don't want to say irrationally, but、um, his his devotion to her is not just out of logic. I think no, no, I don't think so at all. There's um a quote. Let me just yeah, let me just read、uh, a couple sections where he's. Uh, talking about Amelia, and this is coming from his、um, his interlude, and then I'll say a quote from Carol's interlude.、Um, If he was able to buy enough time, verify that she was beyond saving, then he could return her to the women's cell blocks,、uh, cut his losses, and take the resulting hit to his re- reputation as the only real cost of trying. He didn't want to take either either of those options. He had so few memories of he had so few memories with her from when she'd been a toddler, but they'd stayed with him. So. Uh, and and then he goes through some of his you know real feeling、mm-hmm. memories of being with her, including more than once as he prepared tea to share with Lung during one of their long discussions, he thought of the mock tea party he had with his daughter. And then、um, <sighs> these moments seemed further away now than they had in in the days before he'd been re- reunited with her. He would never recapture them, he knew, but maybe he could find other new memories to share with her: a deep conversation, a father's pride at her accomplishments. And then the quote I want to pull from Carol's interlude is, <clears throat> "Her mother's gone, I'm afraid. The big C. Amelia and I were introduced shortly after that. 
about a year ago, now that I think on it. I must admit, I've enjoyed our time together more than I've enjoyed all my crimes combined. Quite surprising. <sighs> so, I think, basically, the at least my headcanon, you know, kind of understanding of this is... The, the, when we see him, right, at, at this mansion, mm-hmm. he, I mean, he's one as a supervillain, right? He he has the mansion. He could defeat all of these heroes if, you know, he were willing to abandon his daughter. Yeah, yeah. He has, you know, control over his, his gang. He's obviously, you know, filthy rich. Like, he has everything he could basically desire except for maybe more security, more you know, stability, more ensuring that this is going to last forever. But after, you know, being with his daughter for a year, I think he's, you know, finally found something that he actually really cares about, really mm-hmm. enjoys and really wants to <laughs> try and be good for. Um, yeah, parenthood definitely seems to have changed him. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Even even if he's still very violent murderer. That's well, true. That's, that's actually... true. Like his actions that he has taken... You know, mm-hmm. as as his like violent murdery self, I think mm-hmm. kind of sit at a different place in his mind yeah. than, than what he does with his daughter, and yeah, I don't know, he has like a deep sentimentality with her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so there's this one part where um, she brings up a family near the end of his interlude. Uh, she says, "You said before that family was the most important thing, something like that." I, would you understand if I said I didn't consider you family? I'm glad you're here. I'm glad to talk to you. But Victoria was my family. (sighs) And then from him, I understand. Yes. Expertise let him mask the pain her words caused him. I abandoned you to them because I was too proud to stop being the Marquis of Brockton Bay. I should understand that you grew more attached to them than to me. Yet I can't. Um... So I think this moment is really important to kind of synthesize kind of the things we've been talking about. Yeah. It's very painful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And he's hiding his his pain from Mm -hmm. her. And I I mean, I don't want to say that, you know, he should, because I don't know if like logically that would be the best. I I don't want to say that he shouldn't, because I I don't know if that would actually, you know, make her like him more or anything. But... You know, that's that's a that's a choice he's making. And I don't know. I mean, she doesn't believe him when he says that he would kind of give everything up for her in the in the birdcage, which, you know, I don't know if that's entirely true because then he would probably die. But he's risking everything for her. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I feel like he is afraid to articulate Mm -hmm. everything and kind of dis or not and, and display how he feels completely. Um, because he doesn't want to, like, fully um, experience that situation, I guess, Mm -hmm. where he can, I I feel like he can sort of temper his pain when he, like, like, isn't showing it to her, because then it's just his to deal with instead of kind of showing to her that he was expecting and hoping Mm -hmm. for more. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of the same thing with all of his lieutenants and all his other, you know, more political things is that mm-hmm. showing his true feelings is kind of a weakness, or at least he feels that it is. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, I almost think that it almost would be correct here, too, because, well, maybe, maybe maybe not, but there's a chance that 
she would think it's weird or something yeah, like that yeah. and like him less because he's so attached to her or something. Then again, he was her father. So like, that's very come on. true. Yeah. Uh, the, the last thing I want to talk about is um, that line in that section. I abandoned you to them because I was too proud to stop being the Marquis of Brockton Bay. I should understand that you grew more attached to them than to me, yet I can't. So particularly the that first section, because I was too proud to stop being the Marquis of Brockton Bay. I don't know exactly how to parse that, because he did, you know, end up stop. He, he, he ended up not being the Marquis of Brockton Bay anymore. It only he's not being in the sense of the ruling sense, but of course he continued to be in the sort of legendary sense. Yeah. And I think that's what he was, you know, speaking about mm-hmm. is that sort of legendary sense of like, if he was to sort of give up what he was doing and kind of step away from that in order to care for her, um, you know, uh, materially, mm. you know, like, and become a father who like takes her to preschool and, you know, buys mm-hmm fancy things and you know like she goes to like target you know um i feel like he the the person that he has cultivated would not do that you know Mm -hmm. like his his, the reputation that he has built around himself i think that was kind of what it was he was like i know how to deal like i know i have built myself into this person Mm -hmm. and i don't want to let go of that so the way you're parsing it is that it's more referring to his actions before that final fight yes yes i think so okay Okay, yeah. And at the same time, if if we're talking about that final fight and his loss there in particular, he could have just, like, taken her and run. I think he, yeah, he definitely could have, true. right? Because he was able to that's, burrow. That's, that's the choice, I think, that he had, had made. Yeah, yeah. He, he chose to try to fight them off instead of just cutting his losses and running away, yeah. but losing a ton of reputation for running away with his daughter. Yes, yeah. So it was either run away with the daughter or acknowledge mm-hmm. and keep the name and keep the reputation. Um, mm-hmm. which he kind of yeah had to compromise, I think. Mm-hmm. What he And then when, like later, I think he became in, in the birdcage, you know, when he's like imagining all of this, I think, um, where he's like imagining the mock tea party and everything that mm-hmm. it seems like he, he greatly regrets that particular action. Maybe not, maybe not everything that came along with it, but definitely that particular action. Yeah. Yeah. The final thing I want to, um, I forgot to mention it earlier is, uh, he says that he's only ever lost one fight, and that's the fight that sent him to the birdcage. He says um, he only lost the one fight, and there were extenuating circumstances. Mm. And the extenuating circumstances, of course, were Amelia. And I just, yeah. I think that's very interesting. It the is. other extension of that is, you know, he's thinking about provoking a mutiny, and he's super assured that he's going to win without question. But also, yeah, he's the one setting it up. in this case, Amelia is also there. Right? Yeah. He, he, he says, of course, I'm going to win. I've only ever lost once. And there were extenuating circumstances, i.e. my daughter was there. And then his daughter is here, too. So she is. Yeah, I think I don't know, because his his relationship, like his conceptualization, I think, of family and and particularly Amelia, she seems like his kind of like, you know, Achilles heel sort of thing. Mm hmm. Um, where he he has this kind of like carefully created you know husk of himself, um, and then she's kind of like the one that can like chip away at that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Un- unwittingly too. I don't think she's yeah, trying yeah. To, she's but totally she does. unaware of how much power she has right yeah. now. Yeah, yeah. So she's just kind of like mired in her own deal. In her own deal. Yeah, well, it's a pretty big deal. So that's true. That's true. 
Okay. Well, that's that's what I have about uh, Marquis. Yeah. Uh, the Marquis of Brockton Bay. So um, yeah, if you have any other, if you guys listening have any thoughts on uh, Marquis that you wanna you wanna give to me or you wanna yell at me for switching between the the two <laughs> names or offer a an alternative third or fourth way to pronounce his name, um, you can send us an email at decomposingpod at gmail.com. So please do that. Yes. Share your thoughts. <laughs> mm-hmm. All right. Let's get into your character study All plans. Right. My character's study. I, the This particular um, section, I think, between Taylor and Alec. And in my head, I, I kind of think of them as Taylor and Regent, so I will probably stick with that. Um, mm-hmm. throughout this whole kind of, you know, uh, uh, look, I suppose, but they have a peculiar dynamic, um, that I think is, is like, like they have strangely the ability to understand each other, but it's not, they don't, it's, it's like not quite like they, they understand each other in, in like a, I've read a case study and this seems to make sense to me sort of way. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I, I, um, I don't know if I've of. like fully articulated it, but um, the I was thinking particularly um, in comparison to others, the way that they kind of interact is mm-hmm. is because um, they're not they're not like open and easy friends, kind of like uh, the way that uh, Taylor and Lisa are, they, or the, yeah. the way that they have become, um, where they they can kind of like share the information and they have maybe some things that they don't tell each other, but um, it it seems relatively easy and then like with rachel it's it's very much taylor working at it very much mm-hmm. like working at it you know very deliberately and determinately um yeah it seems like that dynamic is like a little bit the way that regent you know kind of approaches taylor hmm. is that i mean it's not that he like studies her behavior and decides this is how i'm going to like befriend her but it's very much of he kind of pokes at her to like make her mm-hmm. you know think through what she's doing and kind of examine the underlying reasons hmm. um, in a way that a lot of other people wouldn't like with Brian, he just kind of says it out loud and is like, this is what I think. And you know, this is what's happening. Um, mm-hmm. And it, and she obviously gets mad um, anytime there's that sort of confrontation. But with Regent, there's very, he, he kind of couches it enough in teasing and, and conversation and kind of this, this like back and forth that I think, it makes her, or, or when when he's oppositional, he he you know kind of lays it bare for her to see and examine mm-hmm. for herself. Yeah, yeah, that's that's really that's really interesting. In in her perspective, he's always immature, yes. and she thinks of him like as very and, like and, something to be you know kind of uh, controlled or like hindered, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. corralled maybe. Yeah, corralled. Yeah. That's that's the term. Um, yeah. Yeah, she they they are they slightly confound each other, I think, but they do they they provide clarity in each other's mm-hmm. actions. I think with her, she she kind of unknowingly, mm-hmm. you know, kind of works on Regent to make him like reevaluate himself. And a lot of the time, I think with her, she she's bringing in, you know, intentionality to all of her actions mm-hmm. that he doesn't really have. And I think yeah, yeah, by doing so, because he is like within the group by proxy she kind of like asks him to reevaluate why he's doing what he is doing and kind of you know how he fits into the group and what his role is um mm-hmm. so you're talking about that in 
the more moral sense or in just a normal like acting like in as a as a member of the group dynamic i it's it's a little bit of both um if we look at uh specifically like if we look at uh the way that regent kind of thinks about what they're doing Mm -hmm. um they like when when she has him kind of like rethink um the whole dynamic like with coil where Mm -hmm. she she approaches everybody and is like hey so i've already discussed this a little bit but then here we are i want to discuss this i want to you know take down coil i want to get dinah and he's kind of you know kind of mealy-mouthed about it um Mm -hmm. because to him he's he's kind of just in this sort of like chaotic sort of not really evil but like maybe a bit amoral fun Mm -hmm. like he's kind of just there for along for the ride um and so like uh, in the very beginning in in 15 in arc 15 in the first chapter of that he was like it was fun um that was why we got into this wasn't it easy money fun get to do what we wanted Mm -hmm. no pressure no responsibilities it's become something else so maybe we in that you know and then Mm -hmm. she's kind of like she's kind of she she butts in she's kind of like well i'm not really talking about taking coil head on yet um I do want to preserve my territory, all of this, it's helping people. And then, so he's like, so what do you want? You know, he's, he's always mm-hmm. the one who's kind of like pushing. He's always like. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I, I think what you said earlier about him, um, I mean, your, your, your main point of him articulating or making Taylor articulate her um, feelings on things. Mm-hmm. I, I, that's especially emblematic in that scene. And uh, when, uh, when, yeah, when he basically, like, acts difficult, right, and says, like, why do you want this, you know, this is so much extra work, et, et cetera. Yeah, yeah. It, like, it, but he, he is, even when he's saying that, he's already decided that he's going to go yeah, along he, with it. Yeah, he does a lot of where he just needles her along to make yeah. her articulate in a different way than she has so that, I think by doing this, he kind of, like, breaks down her rationalization mm-hmm. in a way that other people can't. Yeah. The other example, and we talked about it on the overview, was, uh, and, and I stole it from We've Got Warm, uh, is when she's mad about controlling... Um, yes. What's his name? Oh, yeah. When she's mad about controlling Victor. Yeah, Victor. Um, yeah. And he's the one that actually gets at what's, what's, what's the real reason you're upset yeah, about he this. Goes, he goes, let's call a duck a duck. Mm-hmm. You know, you agreed to capture Shadowstalker because, you know, you got revenge. And then later on, he's like... You know, sure, that's fine, whatever, because she's, like, kind of, you know, trying to, like, work her way around it. She's like, oh, you know, all of this. And then he's like, but let's be honest about all of this. Mm-hmm. Like, you spend a lot of time saying one thing, doing another. You know, where he, he mm-hmm. kind of, like, is very clearly, you know, quick to point it out. Um, but he doesn't, I mean, maybe it, it does seem, you know, confrontational at the moment. Mm-hmm. But he doesn't, it, it I, I don't know how, how to articulate the difference between the way that he confronts her with the way that like Brian confronts her about it. Yeah. But some it some way that Regent maybe... doesn't makes it seem less hostile, I think. Yeah, it's it's less steadfast. It's less it's it's a challenge, but it's not one that's actually like demanding that she change. Yeah. Right, where yeah. where Brian he's like um I you know, I'm thinking of the the one in the aftermath of, you know, his torture mm-hmm. uh is you did wrong. You, you 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 know you should feel bad bad about it, et cetera. And Regent's just like you're you're being dumb. Um, and yeah, I guess there's I more like, like emotionally. And I'm gonna I'm gonna go along with it, but like mm-hmm. reevaluate why you're feeling this way because it doesn't make sense to me. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, it's really interesting. He's, I guess, his, his, their conversations are less emotionally charged, mm-hmm. which I think perhaps, perhaps that sort of like, you know, a little bit of a step back, you know, a little bit of like, you know, acquaintanceship rather than like, you know, very close friendship. I think that, you know, kind of cools some of, some of her like defensiveness mm-hmm. um, about, you know, when she's kind of, you know, uh, justifying herself. And then he mm-hmm. also, he kind of, he, he very deliberately like, you know, kind of makes it seem lighthearted, you know, where he, yeah. he, so he, he creates the tension, you know, where he calls her out or he'll, he'll, you know, articulate something and he's like, you need to think about this and why you did this specific thing, you know, or like, you know, why are we all acting this particular way or all of this? You know, he plays, mm-hmm. he plays devil's advocate just for the fun of it. Yeah. Um, but then there'll be all these moments where he, like, he'll always, he, he, uh, use the kind of like familiar, familiar, um, like camaraderie sort of like, he always calls her dork, you mm-hmm. know, or like, um, I, I love how Taylor just continually gets mad about that. She's like, you're still like calling the me that? the most mild thing that he could do. Um, yeah, see, so he kind of like, he like lets it, he lets it become lighthearted. Yeah. Um, you know, where they're, after they, after the, they fight, um, dragon suits you know he's like off to go do whatever so he's like i'll be off too you know and good work chief you know he does this like mock salute mm-hmm. um where he he just kind of and then to her that that that's like a both a moment of of like tension and then also like release because it, mm-hmm. it's him just kind of you know like accepting her role in it and and you know kind of creating creating space for her to like relax after that kind of like you know very tense moment of like yeah. the fight this very like you know, one after another sort of thing. But, and then he kind of like creates the segue for the discussion of leadership. And mm-hmm. yeah, he does. Yeah. I wonder if that was intentional. I don't know. I can't tell with Regent. Yeah. Because I, I feel like he has, a, I feel like he unconsciously has intentions, you know? Yeah. But also, I don't know. To me, I, I also can't understand pure chaos. <laughs> It I don't know if he's pure chaos. No, I think he's... he he wants something to be interested in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because he he only has emotions, you know, so often. Uh, yeah. It, one one thing I think is important to to just you know take stock of is that he just he really does enjoy being part of the group. Like mm-hmm. he could do anything else, especially you know post having a shatterbird, right? Yeah, like, no, he's kind of carting her around. He has all this, but. He chooses to like continually keep interacting, you know. Yeah. Uh, there's multiple times where he like goes off to go hang out with Imp, and this sort of yeah, which bodes seems to bode ill. But I don't know. They both like. Mm-hmm. They, I feel like they would be very like, um, not not trickier, but I feel like they would mischievous. Yeah, mischievous. I feel like they could they could cause some, some you know very like puck like scenario. Mm-hmm. to occur i don't know yeah um yes yeah so they have like a very interesting sort of almost unconscious dynamic because mm-hmm. they neither of them set out to do like they didn't they, they they don't intentionally you know cultivate a relationship it just kind of like has occurred you know yeah i think part of it is is being part of the out group um mm-hmm. of the of the group but at, at the same time also because they have this kind of the same kind of attitude of, well, they're both bucking the authority of some of the undersiders. Mm, that's true. Yeah. 
Oh, wait, are you talking mm-hmm. about Regent and Imp? Oh, yes. Oh, okay, yes. okay, okay. Yes, was, that makes more sense. I, I thought you were talking about them as well. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, yeah, no, they... Oh, okay. They're an interesting pair. But um, the dynamic of Regent and Taylor, I think. Right. Um, they, I f- they have that sort of... Oh, yeah, no, they those two. Those two were the ones that I was speaking about of, like, where they kind of, like, didn't set out to have an acquaintanceship. Mm-hmm. Whereas I feel like I feel like Imp and, and Regent did, mm-hmm. but in in like kind of a what you were saying this sort of like we've been forgotten so we will you know kind of band together band together yeah yeah um, you know it's interesting I I feel like Lisa would have a really good time with them if she didn't have two other serious people that she is trying to get the favor of even more yeah she, she seems like she would fit in well with that kind yeah. of. Like, like she cares about Taylor and Brian's opinion too much to go off and joke with them, but I yeah. think she would love to. Yeah. She, I mean, she was a kleptomaniac that, before all yeah, this, right? Yeah, she's kind of, like, or been basically something stuck like that. Into, into, like, you know, an official position because of her power, but mm-hmm. I feel like she would have a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Um, yeah. I, I, I find the, the dynamic at the very beginning of the story, before things get very serious, I think, just as a snapshot of like what taylor and and regent's like you know relationship as a as an interaction could have been Mm -hmm. if things didn't get so incredibly uh chaotic and serious where yeah he's he's needling her but not i mean it's very casual there's not a lot at stake yeah it's not and it's yeah yeah for the most part anyway yeah well i mean it's regent but yeah and like his his cruelty is pretty limited to like real life like friend cruelty mm-hmm. like I, I don't know if that's exactly the right term but you know like tripping someone so they fall kind of thing uh, yeah, yeah, yeah which of course is not uh okay with taylor for very obvious reasons yeah but because well, she kind of and in a healthy dynamic of a friend group it wouldn't be that bad i think that's that's you know that that kind of ends up being the effect of of his kind of you know like the calling her dork chief you know all of this kind of and then you know kind of needling her um in their discussions that sort of thing i think um he's kind of like forging that that normalcy into mm-hmm. their friendship so that she like becomes accustomed to it mm-hmm. um i mean she still lets it you know kind of set her off sometimes but he he intends to do that i think yeah yeah uh we've got worm pointed out to me that taylor always gets defensive about stuff even when they might just be jokes the the example that um they talked about and it stuck in my mind was when she in arc 14 is going to feed atlas bugs and she mentioned that she was thinking about feeding her people bugs and regent's like ew gross (laughs) um it like how evil are you it's like very obviously just a joke and not I mean, like it's it's almost the appropriate response to that kind of statement. Mm-hmm. But Taylor gets very immediately defensive about it, going, "Well, it's a good idea. It has all the nutrients, and people around the world do it. And of course, I would try it first. And it's like, Taylor, relax. Yeah, it's, it's kind of like she she's spent all this time thinking. You know, she's trying to think practically. You know, and she's mm-hmm. she's you know maybe it's been an idle thought, but like. It seems like she'd done research and thought about it and yeah. and she's kind of like made these steps to, you know, kind of check things off and then suddenly he's just kind of like to her it seems like he's he's like pulling everything apart. And so mm-hmm. she like I don't know. She wants yeah. she wants things to like 
She wants her- herself. She wants her actions to be correct. Mm-hmm. Yes, I think that's a a good way to sum it up. Yeah. Of course, they only have to be correct by her own estimations. Oh yeah, so. very very true. And he does that a lot, where he's like he kind of like sets her in a different perspective, so that she has to think about it more. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, like if she was actually planning to feed people bugs, I think he would be the one thinking, "Hey." Uh, he would be the one to put into her mind, hey, uh, bugs are gross. Yeah, Make people... people understand that you're not just being gross. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, that's that's about all that I have for them two currently. Currently. Yeah. Of course, there there is more relationship to come, I'm sure. Yeah. More interactions to complicate things. Yeah, I assume so. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, let's. Uh, okay, so we're gonna have our uh, one of our little little interlude here. We're gonna mm. talk about our, our favorite moments from the last three arcs, uh, just for a little bit before we get into our explorations, our perspectives. All right. So, uh, Clarence, please start off with yours because I forgot to write mine down and I need a second to think about it. Yes. Okay. So, um, we didn't talk about it because it was really kind of just like this aside that didn't. Mm-hmm. It wasn't. It wasn't even really anything. It was just kind of triumph. Um, wandering around in the like radiation area or radiated zone or whatever um, of uh, Bakudu's palm, I think mm-hmm. that it, yeah the the scar yes. uh, or the a big section of um, yeah does it have like a I don't know yeah that, it does later on but okay, it's, okay. it's I'm I'm gonna cut it so that people don't know I just spoiled that but I mean it doesn't really matter it's just what that section okay, ends up yeah, being called section. because it's where all the bombs were dropped uh, yeah the section where where everything. Well, all the bombs were dropped yeah, during the there's like Slaughterhouse Nine fight. The yeah. radiation is like still present and mm-hmm. presumably causing problems. Um, mm-hmm. But like Crawler and Mannequin are like in you know are silicone mm-hmm. statues, maybe I don't know. But like they're silicone, um, and I, I I think it's like it it's maybe a paragraph, but it just it it was such a stark image in my head. Yeah, of this kind of like almost this like terrible like after image monument type thing mm-hmm. um you know or you know there's just kind of like physically embedded into like the cityscape yeah i don't know that just i mean that's like a very small thing to change or like to leave behind but mm-hmm. um just just the fact that it's like still there and they're still there and yeah i don't know i mean i really liked it, it it's fascinating <laughs> yeah I, I i love the the image in my head of of crawler his arms splayed open roaring at the sky yeah you know like that at the height of his hubris essentially saying nothing can destroy me hurt me so that i can become stronger and then it actually does yeah, yeah. off him yeah and then mannequin trying to slink away mm-hmm. and not being able to yeah it's very yeah is silicone is silicone the thing that people use when they 3d print uh no uh, that is, oh, is um, that kind of like something called stuff? PLA. It's a particular plastic um, material. No, silicon is uh, the main material used for computer chips. I think it's kind of like glass. Oh, um, okay. It like not not like as a physical property. I believe it's something like glass, but um, it also is used as a sort of not not as plastic, but a material similar to plastic. I believe. Mm, okay. I'm I'm not a material scientist, a materials scientist. So uh, if someone wants to email us uh, a, a good explanation of uh, what silicon is and its properties and stuff, like I yeah. I can list I mean, examples can, of what it's used go. in, but I don't know its like Find intrinsic it. properties. 
Yeah, yeah. So, mm. yeah, if anyone wants to do that and school us, we would appreciate that. Yes. Yeah. Well, what was your favorite moment? Have you thought of one? I So I have. Uh, I, I mean, I have a couple of little ones. Um, the, the, the first one is, and we, we kind of already talked about it, but when uh, Taylor is torturing Triumph and uh, there's that part mm. where she's confronting the mayor and particularly the section where he goes, uh, he's my son, right? And it really, really affects Taylor emotionally, even though she's not completely aware of why mm-hmm. and, you know, doesn't actually take it in and, you know, reevaluate her decisions, really. Um, you know, she her eyes start, eyes start tearing up and all she says is, yeah, which is just like, she yeah, she can't muster a response. Yeah. As this mayor, you know, tries to kill her with a shotgun. Um, oh, yeah, that's a good moment. I mean, not mm-hmm. good, like, that's a... Yeah. Notable. Well done moment. Yeah, yeah notable moment. Yeah. This was the one I was thinking of, but um, the the first hero that they encounter when um, the, the travelers leave their apartment. Ah, yes. The one that blows himself up. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's very, um, yeah, he, he's he's the bubble cape. Uh, that That's his entire description. Yeah. And we kind of just see a snapshot of his entire, you know, career, basically. Yeah. I mean, the end of his career. His GI tract. Yeah. And... <laughs> He, you know, is fighting the Seamurk. He's, you know, being a true hero and then gets impaled and yeah. he's barely paying attention to these civilians. He's just, he's just like, get out of here and then kind of pays them no mind as he's, you know, preoccupied with his intestines being pushed out of his stomach. It's and terrible. he's still thinking of, of escaping at that time, which is... How? How? Yeah. He's still he's still thinking of, if I could just get free, I can fly away. And Dragon says, you won't get it in time. And... The the choice of of whether or not to continue living is is taken away from him. Yeah. The, you know the the armband goes off. It is it starts beeping, but I just just that moment, that implication of like he knows that he's gonna die, so he places his wrist close to his head. That way, it's instantaneous. Like mm-hmm. I don't know, I, I I don't know exactly how to parse what what I'm feeling there, but like it's like a mixed sort of acceptance. Yeah. Wait, like he doesn't want this to happen. He's mad at Dragon for doing it, but he knows he must. Yeah, 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 yeah. I feel like that to me is is the best sort of tragic hero. Mm-hmm. Um, is the one that like knowingly faces death. Yeah, not just has like the epiphany and is like, ah, oh, here are all the things I could have done better, and now I die. You know, unexpected. You know, because somebody rolled up to the castle, but um. The ones who, who acknowledge that it is the end. They have done mm. all that they could. Yeah. Man. He doesn't leave a message to anyone. Yeah. I Presumably, he probably left a message before he went before. out. Before. Yeah. Yeah. Or maybe he didn't have anyone that was worth, like... Ah. It, not, not, not that he didn't have anyone at home, but that he didn't have anyone worth... He, he chose to yell at Dragon instead of leaving a message so so no one that is worth more than expressing his final emotions yeah yeah okay that is our our favorite moments yeah. uh let's get into our essays yes okay so i'm the first one mm-hmm. um this one okay so you complained last time that we keep calling them essays so i wrote essay exploration 
Oh, wow. Wow. A beautiful synthesis. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So mine, uh, it it kind of like meanders a bit. Mm -hmm. Um, So I apologize if it seems like we're kind of wandering around. But it, it, it wouldn't be a podcast if it you wasn't. Know, there's, there's at least like a thread, you mm-hmm. know, that follows. Um, so first, we're going to kind of start with kind of resituating um, formalism, but then uh, specifically like new criticism. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of uh, this this sort of, uh, oh, into, into like contemporary use, right? Um, so we'll kind of... So oh. to just to remind um, everyone, mm-hmm. uh, so basically... The, the invention of, of English and literary studies as a university, uh, like, department. Um, like, it, it existed, but it kind of didn't have a specific purpose, essentially. Yeah, yeah. Was invented with these, um, the American professors, uh, which were called the, the new critics. Yeah. And they are the, the initial part of, of formalism, which is basically the notion of looking at the form of the text as the way to analyze it. And that's basically how most of us analyze text today. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's specifically like looking at like the text by itself, like kind of, you know, because before, before formalism, like there was a lot of, you know, emphasis on like the historical and um, autobiographical and biographical pieces of the text and a lot of like mm-hmm. the kind of like, you know, couching of everything. And then... Um, the new critics, like specifically the one that I kind of like re-examined a bit was Cleanth Brooks, but there was, you know, everybody else too, um, where they kind of, they decided that it should be logical, mm-hmm. you know, this kind of, it's not like, it's not biographical, it's not historical, um, it's not subjective. It needs to be like, you know, this objective study, you know, kind of to, to kind of modulate this, this like emotional first response which i still cannot mm-hmm. figure out who said that but that was kind of like mm-hmm. the you know that was kind of like the prevailing thought especially like because we're coming out of like romanticism all of that is that the first response to a book to a text is emotional and so the mm-hmm. the new critics were kind of like we have made these these ways to read um as 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 like you know kind of this m- modulating ability to kind of like you know, kind of reinscribe logic onto um, the text, right? So basically, to feel, but to moderate that f- feeling interpretation of the text through a logical reading. Yes. Yeah. Okay. And then, I mean, later on, the the like reader response theorists mm-hmm. kind of like throw that out the window. They're like, no, we need to. Yeah, we're like the the feeling is the most important part yeah. because it's yeah. the actual reaction you're getting, and also it's informed by society. Mm-hmm. It, yeah, your your feelings are informed by the the society in which you live. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So they they were kind of focused on this kind of like interior life of the text, um, and in order to examine that, the necessity for that is for text to be stable, um, which you know they they needed it to be self contained and self referential, right? Um, mm-hmm. So that they can kind of like you know examine it as objective instead of kind of bringing in mm-hmm. everything else that kind of interacts with text. Um, so they had to, they had to kind of naturalize the notion that that text is stable and they, they kind of extended that to the literary canon. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you kind of step into this, this like close reading um, 
from like a contemporary standpoint, it, it becomes kind of difficult to kind of rectify, I think, the like our current understanding of the literary canon. Because mm-hmm. like we know it's unstable. Like we know that it is like socially produced as the norm, right? Yeah, there's, like there's no particular reason. I mean, Shakespeare is great, but there's not a specific reason why he's taught over another contemporary yeah, writer. Yeah, it's that like other than because we say that we need to. Yeah, precisely, precisely. The like the values that are kind of embedded um, within those texts within the literary canon. They like they've become naturalized, mm-hmm. so that like it becomes a canon instead of just like a list of books. Um, right. But then we we've like over the last half century um oh god no it's it's already it's 20 years into the yeah into the new one. century ah, yep. Yep. Ah. so goodness goodness so almost yeah. almost like I, three-fourths it... of a century later um <laughs> we've kind of like poked holes in that so i think approaching approaching close reading and approaching formalism now i think we have to take into account um we have to keep in mind that this is this is not necessarily like the full reality mm-hmm. you know what i mean because um, text i mean it's definitely fluid like we have all these adaptations you know we have we have like particular moments in time like the way that that readers read it you know kind of yeah creates something almost new because because they read it you know there's i don't know there's just so many additional things that kind of you know bleed into it and kind of unravel that yeah the the way that a um you know, contemporary of of Shakespeare would read or you know watch one of his plays is and understand it and feel about it and grasp all the implications of is not only different from a contem- contemporary person, but it's also different from like a professor now, right? Even one who has studied and is yeah, you know simulating precisely. themselves in the time, and 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 then a, a you know a, a, any normal reader is relating it to just the the modern day and what's what what's going on right yeah yeah. Um, well because they might be more likely to analogize as like a character to you know the leader of a country or something yeah yeah we kind of we we kind of naturally turn to that that you know kind of looking for those connections to to the to the um real world i guess you could say i don't know but just to the situation at hand i suppose you could say Mm -hmm. Um, if you want to be marxist about it you say the material um, reality yes, of the world. Yes, no, that is exactly what I was searching for. <laughs> yeah, we, can, we we want to tie it to material things. Um, yes. Because um, literature kind of defamiliarizes mm-hmm. these, these, like, the archetypes and, like, the values and that sort of thing from ordinary language, you know? Um, which, that was, that was, like, kind of their whole thing as well. That was one of the mm-hmm. terms that the new critics came up with was defamiliarization, um, where we kind of, like, take it out of... Um, the context yeah isn't the understanding something like it, i'm i'm really hoping i'm not getting this mixed up with the post structuralists because i've that that's what i've been reading now but um the notion that uh literature and poetry and things like that are everyday language made into this yeah this unfamiliar way that way we can view it differently than than we do in our everyday yes Yes. Which is like, I mean, I mean, the just to, to to simplify it down is that the way that literature is written and the way poetry is written is not how we talk. The only time that this particular style of language is used is in these sorts of texts, 
right? Mm-hmm. Like even if you're telling a story out loud, you don't tell it like you do literature for the most part anyway. Yeah, it's very like, there are definitely like particular ways that we kind of structure, you know, literature and, and, and storytelling, I think, versus just like ordinary language. We use, mm-hmm. we use text differently. Um, yeah. But that gets that that's that's a whole nother conversation about like yes, yes you know like the rhetorical use of you know different things um, but um, it's it's actually interesting though that that the new critics kind of you know tacked this onto them the defamiliarization because mm-hmm. um, you know, kind of a little bit of what they were speaking back against uh, like of of like the the you know emotional attachments in in like romanticism. Mm-hmm. Um, like was very reliant upon upon this sort of like marriage of, of like realistically you know telling stories and then attach attaching to um like imagination, mm-hmm. um because the I guess this is this is much earlier this is like a like a hundred years or maybe hundred fifty years previously, um of like kind of the popularization of the novel like mm-hmm. I mean now we we think of it as like genre fiction. The novel kind of like sat in that in that kind of um, social space, I guess you could say, of 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 the novel where it was where it's it's um, reading for the masses, right? Not reading for not like this, you know, big fancy. It's not highbrow, classic, yeah. You know, it's not Paradise Lost. Yeah, it's yeah. Um, it's just a story about a guy who gets stuck on an island, mm-hmm. right? Although I feel like compounding the situation of like. They people, you know, the big fancy people who were kind of running the universities at the time um, were a lot of like old white men, mm-hmm. um, and the, a lot of people who were writing novels, and especially like gothic novels, were like, I mean, it was like women yeah. writing by women, writing you know for women, sort of thing. Yeah. That was kind of like where it really like began until it like kind of expanded. Right, Frankenstein. Um, what's the uh, um, uh, Jane Eyre? Yeah, right. Yeah, the Bronte sisters. Um, and Radcliffe, that whole kind of crew. Um, so it, it, it's, it was deemed, it was deemed lowbrow, but really it was just misogynistic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, this kind of, you know, uh, designation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, cause it was kind of seeking, it was seeking to kind of like create an objective world, right? So create like the realistic world and then just kind of like placing subjectivity into it. Kind of like yeah. bringing and their this own is... imagination. Uh, just to tie it to another term in case we use it again, this is th- that notion of realism is um, a very modernist yeah. notion yeah. of just let th- throw off the, the traditional things in favor of what is real and essential. And that's where like stuff like stream of consciousness is important. Mm-hmm. But anyway. Oh, yes, yes. Ah. I, I'd say stream of consciousness because uh, I was thinking of other writers and I thought of Virginia Woolf and I was just trying to remember um, when she was and she did stream of consciousness yeah she was kind of the 1920s i think yeah she's another one of these what's what sits in my head writers yeah um um yeah so the the formalism was kind of you know it like wanted to kind of i mean it 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 bred out of you know the what we discussed of like kind of um uh, wanted to wanted to um kind of codify what they're doing and like establish establishing the field and everything like that and kind of wanting to create this very like objective way to study literature but at the same time turning it into a science yeah, yeah. turning it into a science but it, it it was kind of like back in uh it was like dualistic in its purpose of like 
it was speaking against the kind of literature appreciation and this like very emotionally reliant you know kind of romantic mm -hmm. way to read um and then also kind of it had the kind of you know institutional reasons um mm -hmm. so i'll kind of like be sitting in between that because i want to talk about the sublime mm -hmm. um so it'll be kind of like a variation on the theme of formalism uh, because the sublime is is very it 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 has a very you know traceable kind of um, genealogy i think mm -hmm. um that i think kind of gives it gives all of the kind of context and background for us to kind of like look at it within worm um okay yeah yeah um because it it's i think it speaks kind of to uh both the way that that Walbo kind of writes horror and mm -hmm. and um kind of the like experiential aspects yeah um of the of the kind of you know beyond i don't it's not like supernatural you would say do you think i don't know i don't know i don't know what particular uh, uh which which aspect are you talking about of, of like the Endbringers and nilbong and everybody nilbog yes you... yes i don't know why <laughs> i don't yeah. know why i had an action n um um yeah well i mean they are supernatural they are would you would you assign uh, that supernatural okay. as the uh adjective well that's interesting of of a of a point do they count as supernatural elements in this world in which supernatural elements are part of the world yeah are normal ports i would i would say yes because they are unusual over the natural aspects of the world where where powers are an accepted more or less norm mm, they i mean they're not a norm but norm. they are not they're they are common enough to be an accepted part of the world the endbringers and people like nilbog and some of the slaughterhouse nine i think and other kinds of these these sorts of otherworldly sort of threats mm -hmm. and stuff like the trigger visions are i think supernatural in nature as a uh what's it called not aspect element? not tool huh element element um that's close but it, it, that that functions yeah element of the of the text yeah hmm yeah. So yeah, I would uh, I would agree. Okay. Do you want us to uh, as um, define yes, sublime? Yes. Sorry, I got waylaid. <laughs> but okay. <laughs> yes. This. Okay. So the sublime um, is is this sort of um, kind of mixture and and you know duality. I think of intense fear and intense pleasure. Like it it like sits together of like this. There's like um, both like you know awe and like terror. This, this kind mm -hmm. of, you know, this so much so that it like takes you out of yourself. Yeah. Like it's so, it's so terrifying. It's so threatening. It like, you know, creates so much dread and like, it's, it's something that like completely takes over your body, you know? And, yeah. and we, I mean, we don't really think about astonishment in this sort of like fully encompassing kind of way, but it, it really mm -hmm. is, you know, that this, it just like, it goes, you know, it, you, you are beyond your, your regular emotional capacity mm -hmm. um but it's interesting in 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 my head mm -hmm. which is probably informed by other things um you know not as accurate to the to the real meaning yeah it, it's almost more on the I, I don't say positive side but more on the like it's also beautiful i think right yes yeah no it, it also holds beauty yeah yeah it kind of there is that kind of conversation between those two like 
looking up at a mountain and feeling vertigo is a kind of sublime feeling. Yeah, yeah. Of just this towering thing that feels like it it could collapse on you, mm-hmm. even though it won't. But and it's a beautiful aspect of nature, but also yeah, so much larger. And nature, I think, um, comes up a lot when people are kind of trying to, you know, experience the sublime. Um, mm-hmm. There was particularly the like. There's this. There's this moment um, in Frankenstein that Victor Frankenstein is he he's going to go into the woods because he can't handle what's happening. You know, I think I think this is the moment that like multiple different people have died and he like he can't handle it. Right. And so he he goes out into the woods, you know, he's going to climb this mountain to go into nature to seek, you know, answers or solace or something, right? And he looks up at yeah. the mountain and he he feels that that sort of like terror and and you know, but then also excitement and and you know, the just because of like the vastness of this, you know, uh monument not monument um landscape i guess mm-hmm. mountainscape i don't know um landscape works yeah um and then as he is doing that he sees um his creation right he sees his mm-hmm. monster up like you know kind of trudging up and and then like a different sort of of like terror overtakes him yeah um which you know that's that's a totally different thing that's like you know kind of tinged with like guilt and all of this but Mm -hmm. um and and people really they don't really like bring up hysteria quite as much with this with the sublime but i feel like hysteria can be a consequence maybe well in this context yeah you know because it is it's it's about that kind of you know like such an overwhelming experience of this mixture of like terror and fear and but also like pleasure and like beauty and it, it's all like really mixed up. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's kind of like a little bit of that. Um, specifically, I wanted to mention um, Edmund Burke's because he like his mm-hmm. his definition of it because he has this whole essay that he wrote on the sublime um, where, well, I mean, it's on the sublime and like the beautiful, all of this, this like physical, philosophical inquiry into the origin of it. Um mm-hmm. But he's also like talking about taste and and kind of what is expected of taste and and the like definitional occurrences I think of the sublime. Um, mm-hmm. He goes down like multiple different things that that you could kind of you know define as or like what what could cause the sublime you know like like terror and and obscurity and um. There's yeah, the sublime is always tinged in some sense by the unknown yeah. and by the feeling of being small. Mm, yeah, I think. like vastness or like infinity. Um, yeah, yeah. He has. He, there's one particular line, line where he's like, "Infinity has a tendency to fill the mind with that sort of delightful horror, which mm-hmm. is the most genuine effect mm-hmm. and the truest test of the sublime." Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's this kind of like, I don't even. I I, I don't know how. A material thing to attach to it but yeah it's this it's this sort of like you have transcended you know kind of the divisions of emotion mm-hmm. um yeah I, I think um to if you want to just start maybe pull some examples from stuff that we've read um and then before we get into worms examples uh like the ending of the the movie annihilation i think 
is uh, tinged, tinged with the sublime. Yes, I would absolutely um, say that. Um, uh, House of Leaves, I think the sense of the the, the central narrative. Um, yeah, the this kind of yeah the kind endless, of like endless space, endless hallways. Yeah, yeah endless space. But I think additionally, sublime. Um, the kind of in between narrator who's kind of the editor but not really. I'm um, mm-hmm. the one who's kind of in typeset. Mm-hmm. Um, his experience where he he is being pursued mm-hmm. um, by something that does not exist. Yeah. Or perhaps it does exist. I don't know. I haven't finished it. But I assume that it does not. It does not seem that it exists. Um, to me, that seems almost almost sublime because it is it is the something it is it has like the dread and like the terror of it. Mm-hmm. But it is something that he cannot stop. You know that he he must return to reading yeah. this book and, and editing this book. And I feel like that kind of yeah. gets, you know, mixed. And then, yeah, uh, another example that some do people might have um, listened to is uh, the Magnus Archives has a bunch of examples as well. Mm-hmm. Um, stuff for, regarding vastness and, um, yeah, the, there's, there's several episodes in particular that I'm thinking of these vast spaces or enormous things uh that are just the just the knowledge of their existence fills the heart with terror. Yes, there was um, something also. Oh, oh, um, there was another thing that I wanted to. It's it's kind of like a. It seems like a factoid, or a fact. I don't know, but it it um, it kind of places in context the the way that everyone is sort of thinking and when they're writing Gothic um, is that mm-hmm. this volcano in Iceland. Um, in 1783 to 1784, like seven months or eight months, this volcano erupted mm-hmm. for that prolonged period of time and like okay. cast a like a literal haze, a like shadowy haze over um, huh. the continent of Europe. So much so that like wow. Syria could see like it, it was very, very, you know, it, it changed the the size, skyscape um, yeah. of Europe. Um, it's it's huh. the whole thing of like with the scream, you know, that painting. Yeah. Is that you know, I I feel like that was painted in this this particular moment. Don't quote me because I don't know. That was like a while ago that I learned art history, but um, that they they like it 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 literally like it created a, a darker physical environment, um, which kind of cultivated this this sort of you know um, aesthetic, I guess you could say, of of like mm-hmm. kind of you know. Um, unknowing and kind of the darkness that you know that that leaves those spaces to kind of be wondered about mm-hmm. um which doesn't seem like it's relevant but um <laughs> in each of the Endbringer scenarios like each each scene mm-hmm. that we have of them and even with um no bog sorry i have to mm-hmm. think about it now um they they change the landscape of yeah. the situation that they're in um because yeah. When you kind of like look at the way that Wildbo, you know, writes about it, the way that that the characters talk about these these different beings, and the way that Wildbo kind of sets us up to encounter them as readers, mm-hmm. um, I think kind of cultivates that sort of um, that sort of feeling of of like intense fear and and like beauty. I think mm-hmm. that's my argument for the yeah. day, is that. The Endbringers and Nobog and Noel, who maybe is attached, mm-hmm. who knows? 
and then also the mm-hmm. like flapped beings <laughs> i don't know what else to call yeah. them okay but um no every it's, time it's, that we it's good no i just just the particular adjective of flapping that's that's the only i really don't know uh, why i've just... latched on so strongly to that particular action it's just a silly sounding word. It is. It's so. <laughs> I wonder. But I wonder how much mind... of this conceptualization of these these uh, larger than existence uh, entities um, is is affecting your your feeling about them. I don't know. I have perhaps it is perhaps it is impacting it greatly. <laughs> Who knows? Who knows? But I wanted to I wanted to bring up kind of you know the beginning stages of of when we see each of them. Mm-hmm. Um, but also I'll go fast. Sure. Um, I didn't put them in order, but you're good. <laughs> um, so like with Leviathan, I'll I'll put them in order in my head. Um, with Leviathan, um, we enter into this into knowing about um, in, we enter into kind of his like you know overtaking. I think. Um, Mm -hmm. with this very, very, like, tangible, like, memory listing, um, where, where Taylor's kind of, like, going in her head when, when Legend is speaking Mm. about, like, the instances that the Leviathan has, has, you know, which, which cities, you know, how, Mm -hmm. like, the devastation that has been created. Um, Mm -hmm. and so we, we have this, we have this verbal kind of articulation of, you know, what has happened, you know, and what, what has been the consequence of it. And then, uh, once the Leviathan, you know, appears is the initial, the initial moment is water, right? Mm -hmm. This, this, you know, complete overtaking of the entire situation, um, with water, right? So it totally, totally shifts the way that, um, the like battlefield is set up and the Mm -hmm. dynamic and like power dynamic, I think, between the Leviathan and everybody else, you know, and then we have this, this like kind of glimpse of a tall figure. And then, um, a little bit later on, Taylor is like, I can almost make out his face, mm-hmm. which is really fascinating. Um, because that happens with the Seamurg too, hmm. where we can almost like, um, it begins. We just get a glimpse. Yeah. There's just a glimpse. Like we see, we see her like physical body and we like, we kind of go through that, but then, you know, it's like Krauss could could make out her face you know she has these like very specific it's it's interesting because each time we encounter them we we see that um Mm -hmm. which i feel uh, like there's that just uh when the seamer's face is described i think there's something said like she looked human but that made her seem more inhuman yeah yeah it's this it's like yeah it's it's this almost human Mm -hmm. because they they could be but they aren't yeah you know and then with with when we're when we enter into into um the whole uh scene with seymour there's like it begins with stillness with her sound mm-hmm. right her scream yeah and then it's not stopping like it's you know we're, they're kind of trying to figure out everything and then that's kind of like our our beginning anticipatory situation like and we see this the destruction of um like the landscape and then we see um the the kind of back and forth between the Seamurg and, and Scion. Scion. Yeah. 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 yeah it, it's it's interesting that um, his attacks in that fight are pointed out. I mean, his his attacks are always silent, but they're mm-hmm. reminded 
we're reminded here that they're silent, as a sea merc is also silent, except for the screaming that is not a tangible reality thing. Yeah. So the only sound is just the uh, with the destruction of of things around them, which almost seems like passive without the sound of the uh, the attacks causing that destruction. Mm-hmm. Like there's not even like an earthquake sound. It's just buildings collapsing. Yeah, yeah it's very the absence makes it worse. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it kind of like cultivates this this. I mean, not really like cottony sort of, you know, but but very like papery. I would say. Hmm. situation yeah. well what makes it interesting to me is picturing that like total silence right with like you know there's also snow you know maybe muffling more mm-hmm. and just intermittent you know a building crashes and we hear the entirety of that sound and then we hear you know maybe the impact of some laser blasts and then a pause and then another crash right it's so it it's not a battlefield yeah right yeah. it's something else yeah Hmm. Um, thirdly, thirdly, um, I wanted to bring up, uh, Behemoth mm-hmm. because the, that, that was actually the second, um, when we look at Seamurg, she also like the way that Wildbull writes it, there's, there's the observations of, of, you know, immediately we, once we get a glimpse, we get the full observations and it begins with kind of this, like, you know, we acknowledge her, her like physical body is big. You know, and then Behemoth mm-hmm. is very similar of like, you know, we get the, we get the, you know, physical descriptions and everything, but it's also like, you know, very short. It's, it's big, you know, and then yeah, it leaves by, by kind of isolating that, like it leaves that space um, mm-hmm. in the text, not, not like physical space, but like space in the text for the reader to kind of place our own, yeah. you know, imagining kind of, kind of in the like Jaws sort of way of like, we don't see the shark. We just, like, know that it's there, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, So you're saying that's the same effect, that because it's described the one time mm -hmm. and other things are only implied by their effects, by how other things interact with them, that leaves a a more mysterious space in our own imaginations. Yeah, yeah. Especially because we kind of... It's not not like an interaction, it's an observation of their Mm -hmm. actions. You know, and and a lot of it is we see the we see the effects, which what you were talking about with Seymour of like we see we see the the material consequences of of their presence of like this whole landscape being covered by water or just the buildings collapsing or you know like it's the the um... you know it's interesting that the Seymourg her event in in the Traveler's Ark is covered in snow. She doesn't summon the snow, right? Mm-hmm. But that is an effect that she has in this environment. Like, like, or It's not an effect that she has, but in her portrayal here, it is tied to her, right? She's this this white, you know, angelic figure-ish, and then there's this white snow everywhere, and whether or not she's the one creating it doesn't really matter when it's tied to our feelings as a reader, right? Mm-hmm. So just how Leviathan appears with a bunch of water and presumably Behemoth with a lot of fire, the Seamir appears here, even if it's not a direct, you know, consequence of her abilities with snow. Yeah, it's... As another environmental factor. Yeah, it's kind of... It it kind of, you know, reinforces the, the, like, social myth of, like, monsters as primordial. You know, as, like, Mm -hmm. 
connected somehow to nature and somehow to the way that you know the the way that things work when they are here, kind yeah. of breaking those rules. Um, yeah, yeah. As a, another with with the Seamurg in particular, I think this notion of an otherworldly being is even strong mm-hmm. with her. I mean, she lives in space, right? And does she doesn't hide in space. You know, she's there. Yeah. And when she comes down, she's more than angelic. She has these, these countless, countless wings, right? Wings sprouting upon wings. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she's so huge and completely... Her precognitive abilities make her even more, you know, graceful than she should right especially when combined with telekinesis yeah yeah so i think yeah the 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 phrase more even more angelic than angels except like wrong yeah um like unnervingly graceful yeah 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 but yeah it's it's those sorts of things that like that combination of like the the beauty of these beings with the destruction that they are causing and like the changing of the physical space um be it through sound or, you know, water or fire with Behemoth? Um, I believe so. And other kinds of energy. Yeah. He's a dynakinetic. Yeah, because there, there, there was one specific instance where they're, they're kind of like looking at him and kind of, you know, trying to figure out what to do. And, and he like roars. Mm-hmm. And it smashes all of the yeah. like, soft organs of one person next to Alexandria. Mm-hmm. And then uh, I think he points at someone and they burn from the inside yeah, out yeah that one especially the burning from the inside out is just uh, like i mean even with sound you know theoretically you know if you had a strong enough power you could dampen it the fire yeah it's it, how yeah inescapable. yeah yeah and then when you look at um nilbog i think there's there's a different sort of mm-hmm. of kind of uh i don't know he he's he's kind of a variation on the theme because he's not he's not physically monstrous he's not physically Mm -hmm. kind of beyond but he creates monsters upon monsters upon monsters that yeah um you know it's like the just the iterations of it i guess the the kind of creation myth that he has created Mm -hmm. for himself yeah um and i think i mean there's this go ahead oh no go ahead well, there's this sense, you know, as this these humans go into this abandoned town of, like, uh, everything living in there has been converted. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's no longer a place of human residence anymore. Yeah, yeah. It, it's now another world, another habitat, an, an alien environment on Earth in, in a normal town. Yeah, yeah. And it's like they're walking past, like, grocery stores and the... The landscape hasn't changed, but the the kind of feeling of it has. Yeah. Um, which I feel like that that sort of defamiliarization makes it into something unknown. Yeah. And thereby terrifying, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah, all the the different signs of I I don't even know if the struggle is the right word, but like the signs of people before you know the the cars mm-hmm. that are are parked with their doors open, but no blood anywhere. Yeah. There's, there's no description of it anyway. It's like, yeah, the entering into the yeah. space, I think, kind of exacerbates the whole thing because we're like, we're making the observations just as they are, where it's like no bugs, no blood, all of this. We get we get the first glimpses yeah. of 
of his creations first and we make the realizations with them um yeah yeah just as like a writing standpoint it, it sets it up with with that sort of anticipatory dread you mm-hmm. know that i think kind of feeds into into the sublime because at the same time it's like i mean it's not like beautiful right but it's beautiful in the sense of of like creation i think Mm -hmm. of like the monsters kind of creating of themselves but yeah yeah. and then noelle is kind of she's um she doesn't quite fit into it she definitely fits into the sublime i think um even more so she probably fits more so on the side of of like beauty and pain like beauty and terror okay um but it's she's a different sort of monster because Mm -hmm. the other ones I mean, they're not necessarily monsters by, well, except maybe Rinky. He's perhaps um, a monster by choice, but, like, the other ones are monsters by birth, I guess you could say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and she's and she's not even by choice and not by yeah, birth either. Yeah, see, she's, like, almost by, like, a second birth, but, like, forced. I don't know. It's mm-hmm. because she she she's a monster in physicality only. Yeah. I mean, I guess... We don't know. We haven't really had that much interaction with her, but it seems to be that is the case. Yeah, I, I think, it, I mean, if we're talking about Sublime, I think being her perspective of just like looking down and seeing your body morph into this grotesque and enormous thing that is completely seemingly out of your control, at least mostly anyway, yeah. at the very least, you are not at all in control of how it changes or what it needs, and I, I don't know if she says it here, but um, I, I, yeah, I think there's a point where it says like the they she tried to like starve herself, mm-hmm. right, and then yeah, yeah. it got too much for her, and then she like ate forty people or something. Uh, and yeah, she's kind of like trying to push herself to the limits that she can't seem to reach. Well, I think she she just wanted to to make it stop. Yeah, yeah. no, that's what I mean. But yeah, Is that she the yeah. the out of controlness nature of your own body morphing into this thing larger than mm-hmm. you i think is definitely has some aspect of the sublime yeah yeah i think so yeah and then finally um i think absolutely the flapping beings the trigger events we cuz mm-hmm. the first one the first one that we see is miss militia yes mhm yes okay, that's who i thought cuz at the time i was kind of like i don't know but it seemed it seemed <laughs> sublime at the time to me. Yeah. Um, yeah when okay. I was first yeah. experiencing it, um, you know that even even like in the description of like it's not big in the sense that the you know the trees or the mountains were big. It was big in the way mm-hmm. that transcended what she could even see or feel. You know. Yeah. And she's kind of and immediately after she's kind of forgetting. She can't remember it. That there's yeah. this this something that's so great, so so vast, and then like is seemingly gone you know from her mind or as is just kind of like a yeah you know the aftershock but yeah that reminds me of um when scrub uh has this trigger event and taylor sees it but Mm -hmm. more specifically uh tattletales few lines afterwards where her power is still working but she's already losing the memory we she says something like they're they're gods and babies Mm -hmm. Uh, something else uh all at the same time yeah 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 so i feel like that kind of fulfills this sort of like not not grandiose because i feel like that's that's too social a word 
something mm-hmm. you know somewhere that's more natural than grandiose yeah but um while still being like terrifyingly unknown you right. know yeah but so those are my kind of like lists um mm-hmm. i i have set this kind of precedent you know this kind of precedent conversation so that i can return to horror later this was kind mm-hmm. of like an overarching kind of thing yeah but i definitely want to kind of like return and discuss the kind of intricacies of it um mm-hmm. in a later episode i think sure uh w- was there any other aspect of, of horror that you wanted to to bring out that was not like the same grand sort of sublime but a, a different kind yes yes i wanted to talk about um the you 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 called it fridge horror which i want to know if that is your own term or something that is no it's a it's a tv trips oh, term. okay okay i like it i like that term um but so that that kind of like regent cherish amy that kind of um body horror i would say or like body and mind well just to to clarify to those who um don't already know the term so fridge horror mm-hmm. is uh i think i i don't remember who said it but basically it's the kind of horror where after you walk away from the tv that's when it it hits yeah. you usually it's ter- it's used when when talking about kinds of horror that are not supposed to be horror like um i don't know thinking thinking about all the 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 goombas that mario has smashed that kind of thing or just like the horror of being squished down to a paste i guess but but usually you know something slightly more serious than that but usually it's a it's a realization of um something that is not meant to be horrible but upon implication becomes yeah Yeah. and and so uh some some of these things in, in worm are not like quite fridge horror but they're like not a horror that is specifically like called to attention by the narrative it's by yourself mm-hmm. empathizing yeah over the narrative into the characters reading between the lines of their reactions and yeah, stuff yeah yeah because a lot of the time we were discussing it of like taylor doesn't totally articulate um mm-hmm. her reaction to things and i think that can and then so we don't always get we don't always get the full scope of like the psychological aspects to things because she thinks very materially. materially, very like practically, and she doesn't always like think about the kind of heady bits that will kind of you know jiggle it around. Um, but yeah, and then when we really do kind of get a glimpse of that is um, is when we are in the minds of Regent of Cherish and of Amy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think. Because because it's almost a necessity, I think, to be in their heads to see this to its full effect. Um, mm-hmm. Because the we see we see the intricacies of the way that it's kind of set up and the way that it works. Because mm-hmm. to just materially watch it happen, kind of you know, outside of either the the subject or the instigator action. Mm-hmm. Well, you could say victim and I don't know victim monster. And monster. <laughs> um, I don't think you would get the full scope of it. Um, right. And then we sort of, this is, this is the, your fridge horror, I suppose, of like, we sort of get the like secondary account, I think, of, of like the full scale of it. Cause we see into the, into the victim's mind through the perspective of, of Regent, of Cherish, of Amy, right? So it's kind of mm-hmm. like, we're getting like the second copy of something, you know, mm-hmm. where it's like, it could be clear, but it's not quite because you did a copy of a copy. You know, mm-hmm. and it, yeah. it, you really only think about it 
in its entirety when you kind of take a step back. Um, yeah. 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 Uh, Regent and, and Cherish, both with their victims, they feel, they know what their, their victims are feeling and they relay that, mm-hmm. but they themselves don't feel it. Yeah. And so we're aware of it without having the narration kind of emphasize it. Yeah, we have to kind of like actively kind of think about the way that it's... Yeah, especially with with Amy and Victoria. Mm-hmm. Um, like externally, Victoria mostly feels violated. It seems, but at, like especially as it you know escalates and Amy doesn't fix things, it becomes even more and more horrible to just imagine what it's like from her perspective. And yet, that as as it gets more horrible, we pay attention to victoria's actual reactions and emotions even less yeah yeah which it's it's a terrifying you know you know um yeah avoidance of looking i think Mm -hmm. um it's very much with all of them it's very much this this kind of richard the third um iago from othello sort of thing of like we're kind of stuck with a narrator that we don't we don't totally agree with but Mm -hmm. like we can't we can't see the the scene from anybody else's standpoint because yeah. they're the ones telling us about it mm-hmm. um yeah it's a very interesting position for the reader to be in i think yeah of the monster mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah okay um yeah. anything else um on on this uh level uh that's i think that's it on my i'll, I'll just kind of like leave it open for me to return if i should so mm-hmm. wish and i'm sure that we will um, yeah, I'm sure that we will. Yeah. There's there's plenty more horror to come. So yeah, yeah. we are we are only um, a little bit less than halfway through the actual book itself. So okay, yeah. Well, this um, will this kind of section the 18 through 22. This next one will that kind of push us past the halfway point? Uh, yes, I think okay. so. Yeah, it's it's book four. I think we're like probably like a hundred thousand words behind, or oh, okay, maybe yeah, even yeah. just fifty thousand from the midpoint. Oh. By by word Very count. Close. So, yes, yes. So, um, yeah. All right. Uh, okay. So let's do a little bit of an interlude before we get mm-hmm. into my section. Um, so here's uh, another another uh, game show uh, thing that we have here. Um, so as a as a, a reflection of the one from last week, uh, rather than how fucked up is that, this segment is called "How sweet is this." Yeah. Uh, so we have a, <laughs> I have a list of, 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 of sweet moments. And so, uh, Clarence, you need to rate them on, uh, some sort of scale. You get to decide of how sweet it Ooh. is. So, uh, f- of course the first moment, and I-, I think highly rated here is when Rachel receives her coat from Taylor. Hmm. I'm going to say 12. 12. Yes. Damn. Out of 10. That is a high rating. I don't know what it's out of, but I assume, I assume it's a lot. 10. It's out of 10. 12 out of 10. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So it's a, so it's a six out of five. If we're going to reduce the fraction. Ah. Okay. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a really wonderful moment, especially just the, the way that they're both fumbling through the interaction. Yeah. I love it so much. Them trying to figure it out. Uh, yes. It seems like they're getting Rachel closer. Like, it hmm? seems like they're getting closer to figuring it out, their friendship. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, next one, uh, Aisha's protective and threatening little sister talk to Taylor. And um, probably a little bit less sweet yeah. is uh, her, uh, I don't want to say attempted murder, 
of her when she thinks that Taylor yeah, has betrayed I mean, the team. Just, but she's very passionate, you know? She's very passionate. <laughs> so how sweet is uh, Aisha's protective feelings towards her big brother? I feel like it's a 7.5. 7.5. Okay, so a bit lower, yeah, but yeah. still still pretty solid. I mean, it shows that she has some, some g- genuine good yeah, feelings. Yeah, she's very attached to him, so I feel like that's, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, the next moment here is uh, Taylor finally, finally freeing Dinah and saying, I'm sorry it took so long, and then uh, holding her hand as they exit. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, immediately being teleported yeah. and being replaced with a uh, a body double. But um, besides that, that happened. pretty sweet moment. Yeah. Um, hmm. I feel like this is a 6.89. 6.89. Yes. So a little bit less than Aisha. Mm-hmm. You know what? I think I might agree. Yeah. Uh, because it is sweet, and it, it there is there's an element of of innocence to it of like a young child, you know, being saved. But it's also like bittersweet, I guess, because you you know what took so long, and you know what's gonna happen next. So it's it's yes, you know, it's like if you landed on the edge of a fence, sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, next one is keeping Atlas out of harm's way. There's multiple moments. Um, it's not a specific mm-hmm. thing where where Taylor is specifically trying to take care of atlas but there's multiple moments in uh in these arcs where taylor is specifically not using atlas because she really doesn't want him to get um hurt yeah uh, i mean she also considers it in a practical sense but even so ah. we love our our, our big beetle being Wonderful. safe so i hope he's over there eating cheeseburgers <laughs> but alas he is not yeah me too me too hmm. so how sweet is this well to me, to me, it is a 10 out of 10. 10 out of 10, but I think damn. for that's, other that's people, high. it perhaps would be like a 5. A 5. But I just really love, I just really love this beetle. <laughs> and so it is very sweet to me. I do too. I do too. Uh, the next one is, the lady said no. And then uh, Flechette punching a spike into Taylor's shoulder <gasps> after uh, Flechette perceives Taylor as a threatening parian. Yes. This is wonderful. I love this moment. A lot. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, ow. I mean, of true. Course. Yeah, and then you know. But but I sh- she but was still. fine. She went and used her dentist mm-hmm. tools. <laughs> so I'd say, hmm, eight point four. Eight point four. All right. So even more, even more than Aisha. You know what? I I might even agree with that. It certainly is a more effective yeah. show of uh, of of love. Um, yeah, I don't know how like much Aisha was planning to like. I mean, she probably could follow through, but it. <laughs> It's also, like, Taylor, mm-hmm. who's, like, kind of her boss. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, w- worth noting that, that both Brian and Perian probably didn't want their their Very protective true. people Very to true. actually do what they did. Yeah. But it's just, it's so dramatic, you know? The spike. It is very dramatic. The decoration. Mm-hmm. I want someone to punch a, a uh, un- unstoppable force uh, piece of metal onto someone's shoulder for me. <sighs> I think that'd be romantic. What an idea of romance you have. <laughs> it's a parahuman notion of romance. Um, I'm trying to think of another example of romance that, that I would hmm. like from the parahuman universe. I would like a bug. <laughs> yeah? Yeah. That would be nice. Okay, yeah. One that has, like, little porcelain you mm-hmm. know, wings. I mean, not real porcelain, but it looks like those little, like, the blue and the, you know, those plates that... You know, mm-hmm. actually, I don't know. Those may be like embedded in colonialist history, so maybe not. Never mind. Well, maybe you can reclaim it or something. 
Maybe. I, I don't know. Uh, I mean, this world is very different. <laughs> Uh, I would like a beautiful bone charm necklace from Ooh. Marquis. Yeah. I think he would make it beautiful. Yeah. Well, plus also, like, does he grow his own bones back? Like, if he, like... I think he can He can do whatever he wants with his bones, so... Because like, I feel can, like I think he, he can regrow them. it out of his own bones, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. That's very, like... Yeah. And you have a piece of him always yeah. with you. It's like somebody's toe. <laughs> Yeah, that romantic gesture <laughs> that everyone does on Valentine's Day, giving someone your, your you know. toe. Yeah, that one. Yeah, as you do. As you do. Yeah, you give them your, your pinky yeah. toe. That's the love toe. Or like your molars, you know, your wisdom All right, teeth. we're going to move on. Um, <laughs> so the next the, the next and final moment I have written down here, of course, there's there's more. I just uh, couldn't think of them in time. Is that, that beautiful moment um, where Marquis uh, knows that, that Amy, you know, needs help. And helps her find a way to remember her sister and takes her to uh, get a tattoo, which is not not cheap. No. Um, you know, five books and five cigarettes. That's pretty, that's, that's pretty high price. And five books, yeah, is, does not seem like a small amount. That's true. I think for Marquis, I would say it's a seven. But for mm-hmm. Amy, I would say it's like a four. A four. Damn. Well, because Damn. with her, she's, she's like, she doesn't understand the total significance mm-hmm. of it yeah but like with him he's kind of seemingly forging you know you know he's like having like a father-daughter tattoo moment mm-hmm. but with yeah. her she's just kind of like excising this piece of guilt you know yeah yeah so from from her end it's more just the effect having she's having on mm-hmm. her because it's see from her perspective it's being provided by someone that she does not have real relations yeah. to it's like a stranger can only be so sweet mm-hmm. to you. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I think that is what we have for the segment. If you have any other sweet moments you you want us to remember from this arc or any arc before, I mean, technically we could have we could have grabbed it from stuff before, but oh yeah, that's whatever. True. Uh, yeah, I don't have the time the, to, to think of everything. Alas. Uh, but if you have a, a favorite sweet moment from. Um, you know, e- e- even this or, or the next section, uh, go ahead and send us an email and, and maybe we'll respond to it. All right. Uh, so let's get into my essay. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to hope I think mine's going to be a little bit shorter, uh, but that's OK. Sorry, so I'm going to be talking about. Say it again. Oh, I sort of rambled. No, no, no. I appreciate it because mine was already short. Oh, so okay. it, it works out. So uh, I'm going to talk, talk about uh, a certain Marxist that uh, was talking about these ideas of, of dominance and hegemony. So this is um, uh, Antonio Gramsci. He was an Italian Marxist who was jailed under Mussolini's regime uh, for opposing the state. And he wrote the prison notebooks, uh, mm. which he wrote in prison before he, he died. So uh, Gramsci, uh, Marxists in general... Uh, a big question, especially early on, is why don't the oppressed classes, you know, rise up? Why do they view it that the the current state of things is in their favor materially? Because, uh, especially at the time, I'm, um, and I, I would argue now as well, although you know different solutions are are debatable. Mm-hmm. Um, the yeah, the 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 oppressed classes, of course, are exploited. I mean, that's how economies yeah. work. Um, and yet we view um, 
the current state of things as natural and and good. So Marx uh, originally, the the way that Marx articulated ideology was basically that ideology is something cultivated by the ruling class uh, in order to basically trick or fool the oppressed classes into thinking. It, right, that that things are how they're supposed to be, yeah. and that the duty of you know someone uh, of of communists is to lift the veil of uh, the oppressed classes so they they can see reality as it really is, which is that they're being oppressed and uh, that the current conditions are not actually beneficial to them, and and rise up, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, except um, Althusser later on, who was wrote after Gramsci and and was inspired by him. Um, was arguing about how uh, there there is no objective, you know, truth or reality. No matter what you do, you're you're being influenced by ideology one way or another. Uh, yeah. So that's that's where it eventually evolved to. Um, but uh, Gramsci, right, is um, writing from under right a fascist regime. So that's that's his perspective. He's writing from uh, there are uh, capitalist regimes where uh, the the press classes are. You know, not working in the interests, but especially in this fascist regime, which is it, its entire structure is built so only a, a privileged few get any benefit. Yeah. So the way that he understood it was that there's uh, two ways that a state rules: dominance and hege- hegemony. So dominance is the state's monopoly on the use of force and the threat of violence, and the knowledge that the state can make you comply. Right? This is. Um, people in the street that can beat you, the ability to jail you, etc. Yeah. Um, however, dominance can only go so far before it encounters resistance, right? Mm. And um, I'll go into those with our our worm examples. Uh, more important, and uh, what actually makes the state last, is uh, hegemony or cultural hegemony. So this is the willing consent of the, the governed to this... Uh, whatever the oppressive government is. And hegemony is far more complicated than this notion of a, you know, secret cabal of uh, cynical elites that that intentionally create an ideology for everyone to follow. It is certainly influenced by any such cabals or elites, right? But not so intentionally. It's kind of a negotiation, although a a very unfair one, Um, so it's it's cultivated and encouraged by the classes in control to control the subject classes. Uh, and the outcome is that the um, rolled over classes uh, accept that the current state of things is normal and natural and how things should be, even if such conditions are actually intolerable. Yeah, yeah. So like in America, that would be like segregation, right? Yeah. Where there is no reason that this should be how things are, but because they are how things are and the entire culture reinforces that, then it continues to be supportive even if it's actually harmful to a lot of people. Yeah, yeah. So this is cultivated via a variety of means, um, most notably like mass media, which doesn't necessarily have to be like, you know, propaganda in the uh, most literal, you know, um, sense of, you know, posters and whatnot. Of course, that does help. But... Like, just consider something like um, like the Washington Post in real life, which is owned by Jeff Bezos, but not directly, you know, ruled by him. But clearly, you know, the the things that are written have to at least be palatable to someone like Jeff yeah, Bezos, yeah. right? Um, and, I mean, it goes on in all aspects. Anytime a, a, any kind of media 
might need some kind of patron to survive, right? That is where the patrons can exercise their influence mm-hmm. and promote or uh, diminish any messages that don't promote that kind of hegemony. So it, it's a very, it's a, it's a natural, like, sort of natural selection of ideas, right? Where the ruling class wants to promote ideas that, that make it so it's okay for them to be ruling. Yeah, yeah. Where they sort of, like, embed those. And mm-hmm. then they seem as if that is just, like, commonplace or something that's always been accepted. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so creating this cultural hegemony is really important, but also the, the hegemony can can change over time. And when the conditions get so bad that the oppressed classes realize or, or it comes into conflict with it, when the conditions become so bad that they come into conflict with the hegemony's actual like stated ideas, that is where uh, the the oppressed classes rise up and renegotiate the, the hegemony. Yeah. Sometimes bringing it closer to how it should be, but sometimes not. Sometimes going in a, a different direction, just so long as they make it in some way palatable and yeah. okay. Um, it's very often that it the the resistance is sort of redirected or mm-hmm. sort of placated. Yes, a, I think placation is a is a good term. It's like seemingly seemingly compromising or seemingly giving um like you know giving into demands, but at the same time kind of leaving it out. To kind of, yeah. you know, remain slightly uh, at the same sort of status quo. Yeah. Yeah. So Gramsci has a lot of uh, other um, writings involved how basically um, the, the, the struggle against the, the hegemonic class has to be a unified one, right? Where individual, you know, unions working against specific corporations and such things is effective in the, 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 the smaller avenue, but not at all in affecting the actual larger culture hegemony. Like those mm-hmm. unions are working within the hegemony for the most part. Yeah. And uh, so they have to be unified. Um, but that's not the, the thing that I'm getting into here. So uh, just to just to read out another definition from... From uh, the concepts of ideology, hegemony, and organic intellectuals in Gramsci's Marxism, quote, uh, hegemony is a condition in which a fundamental class exercises a political, intellectual, and moral role of leadership within a hegemonic system cemented by a common worldview or, quote, uh, organic ideology. The exercise of this role on the ethico-political as well as on the economic plane involves execution of a process of intellectual and moral reform through which there is a, quote, transformation of the previous ideological terrain in a, quote, redefinition of hegemonic structures and institutions into a new form. This transformation and redefinition is achieved through a rearticulation of ideological elements into a new worldview, which then serves as a unifying principle for a new, quote, collective will. So basically, uh, this condition is created by the moral, intellectual, and political leaders, Mm -hmm. right? So that not only includes, you know, actual political, you know, leaders in charge, right? But also... Uh, I mean, I would say that celebrities are are uh, people that um, people pay attention yeah, to yeah. exercise this. Um, moral leaders, as in like religious leaders, also exercise this. Uh, anyone that people look to yeah. for how they should be viewing situations is involved in this. And so, basically, um, how revolution needs to happen, according to Gramsci, is basically uh, one of the oppressed classes needs to uh, take control or otherwise influence and, and become 
these kinds of leaders so that they can shift the cultural hegemony to make a renegotiation or a some sort of revolution possible. Yeah. Um, and when I'm saying revolution, I don't necessarily mean a violent one. Uh, it's you know any kind of large change yeah. Yeah. Um, of the the system. Okay. So let's get into actually Worm, uh, because I think there's a, a lot of examples in these arcs oh, yeah, of rulers. So there, there's four rulers that we're looking at here. We're looking at uh, Cauldron, uh, the PRT, Coil, and of course, Taylor. Uh, so let's, let's start with Taylor. So Taylor rules her territory. And how did Taylor take control, right? She starts off exclusively with with dominance. Mm -hmm. She's exercising her power on all her subjects. And even if she wouldn't actually use it on the people there, although maybe she would, um, they still feel like they are under threat, right? Um, Just as a state can't actually detain its entire populace, um, but everyone feels that they are at risk if they, you know, were to fight against it. But for most of the story up to this point, right, she doesn't have total control because she actually lacks that culture hegemony and she encounters little resistances constantly, right? Those people complaining or doubting her, Mm -hmm. you know, like that woman who's the the gray-haired woman. Yeah, yeah. um, And the father. And the father, yeah. Um, People defying her because they don't believe that it is natural and good for her to be in charge. Um, It's important to note here that Taylor already has that cultural hegemony ideology in her in her head mm-hmm. right yeah it's not outside her head the people don't believe it but she already believes it right and it's just a matter of basically spreading it mm-hmm. um uh so people are complaining because they don't view her rule as in as in their interests right because they're like oh this is just a warlord she wants to you know take things from us yeah, yeah. so it's important to note that i'm not making a statement about whether or not she actually is working for the interests because that's Irrelevant. Yeah, yeah. The only thing that's important is whether or not the people believe yeah, that. Yeah, and they're sort of waiting for the other shoe to drop, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because the way she's, you know, appearing is not as a legitimate ruler, which the only one to them at, at that point is probably the United States government, yeah. essentially. Um, so, but she starts establishing culture hegemony by co-opting the hegemony of the other state, the state that she's, you know, usurping or... Uh, negotiating the space yeah, of yeah. right um so it starts off at the very beginning right when battery doesn't fight her claim right she's legitimized because uh that's already like a like a strike against the the, the status quo yeah, right yeah. that they should take her out but they they don't They're therefore stay there yeah so yeah so what's different right um and then when she fights against the slaughterhouse nine she's again legitimized she's acting like a hero right she's co-opting some of that image mm-hmm. as a protector and so she's gaining more respect that way. And I think it, she basically, at the end of, of this section, right, with, with the, the barbecue, right, she, she throws the barbecue. So people, again, are like, wow, she's providing, yeah, yeah. right? And we see at the end of this section or, or of that arc, I think arc 15, that they fought against, um, actually, I think that was arc 16, the midway of arc 16 that they, they fought against dragons, drones oh, yeah, right yeah, yeah. so at that point that basically represents like a total shift in their perspective of viewing who who is the legitimate ruler of the area because yeah. it's not dragon right mm-hmm. dragon is the one messing things up dragon is the one ruining the barbecue skitter is the one who provided the barbecue um i know i'm, I'm placing a lot of emphasis on the 
barbecue uh, to establish cultural hegemony. Yeah, but, but it, it, it yeah. holds the same amount of power as like a community meeting or something like that, where it's like it it cultivates, it's a space that embodies the community, right? And she's the one that mm-hmm. has provided it. And so by doing so, she she's kind of attached herself to this, right? And I think yeah. Dragon becomes an interloper instead of a protector um, mm-hmm. when her suit kind of like starts taking it down. Yeah. 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 Uh, another uh, outside the warm example would be like, uh, the cultural hegemony would be exercised in like people holding an election, right? Mm-hmm. So it seems like you know everything's fair; anyone could be you know ruler, but always a particular class is selected, yeah. right? The intellectual yeah. class or whatever. Every single time, you know. I mean, there might be some legitimate arguments, but there's also legitimate arguments that uh, against it, right? The cultural hegemony of you know uh, the the intellectual class over right, an entire blue collar class is that. You can't govern yourselves. You need us, yeah, right? Yeah. Which nuanced understanding there, but um, it's not always in their interest, mm-hmm. you know. And there, there's plenty of other angles you could consider that in. Uh, so uh, it's not until Taylor encounters people outside her territory that she witnesses what people not under her hegemony believe, right? Yeah, her argument yeah. with uh, Perrin and Lachette, um, which is a little bit different because they're they're part of the same sort of class, but in a different you know, environments mm-hmm. uh, as pair humans. Um, uh, but the the other main example, of course, is with her father's friends, yeah. right? Who they have not been influenced by her hegemony. They have not been under her rule. And this is uh, kind of back to back to square one. Like, I'm sure some people on her territory feel that way, but I don't think they feel it the same way that they do. Yeah, yeah they have a different perspective from inside the community, mm-hmm. I guess, but kind of like a miniature state versus like outside yeah. of it yeah and so taylor who believes in her own hegemony right she's the same ideology that she's trying to express to the people in her mm-hmm. territory is viewing her rule as natural and good yeah yeah and the people outside of it see it as unnatural and yeah, bad yeah. so uh so this is often the case in real life there usually isn't Right, that shadow cabal pulling the strings and cynically deciding what should and shouldn't be part of the nation's ideology. It's just people reinforcing it through yeah. action. So this sort of co-opting of the existing culture hegemony, right, um, happens multiple times um, through these other examples. So Taylor does it with the local PRT, right? She's saying, "I can govern better than they can. I will protect you, like the heroes are supposed to." Um, Coil as well, right? He deletes his villain identity in favor of being PRT mm-hmm. director. That's a little bit different because, you know, they don't know that he's a villain, but... Uh, yeah, it's kind of a mm-hmm. duality there, I guess. Yeah, he's he's putting on the clothing of, of someone yeah. else. Although another thing to note is that, you know, he, he'd be kind of functionally the ruler of the area, but he's not democratically elected. Yeah. So that's a little iffy. But the... Um, Another example, of course, is Alexandria and Cauldron creating the triumvirate mm-hmm. who, and, and the PRT, the, the protectorate, who make this show of bending the knee to the United States government while they're actually not doing so at all yeah, yeah. because people wouldn't accept their rule otherwise, right? If Eidolon and Legend and Alexandria wanted to use their dominance to take over you know, the United States, they, they wouldn't have the hegemony at all to yeah. do it. And no one would accept the rule except for, you know, 
being under direct threat. Yeah, they've kind of like cultivated cultivated an image of themselves in order to kind of mm-hmm. ingratiate, I think. Yeah. But I don't know how effective it is. Like, do we know how, like, the, like, regular people's view of the PRT? We don't, but I don't think we see anything. I I think at the very most, people think it, maybe it's, like, corrupt or ineffective mm-hmm. or something like that. But I don't, there, there, I don't, I'm certain that there isn't, like, a sentiment that this this thing should not yeah, exist. Yeah. Um, it's yeah another part of of just the of the world of the government so actually let's get into the prt mm-hmm. right so the prt is is technically under the control of cauldron uh I, I think that's less significant in this example right but we see from multiple perspectives not necessarily just in these arcs but in the arcs before as well of how the prt is intentionally and um, intentionally spreading and altering the public perception of of heroes to suit their own yeah, ends, yeah. right? Of uh, creating the expectation that heroes should be around. I, I think I'm not sure if I remember, but there's probably stuff about you know having certain you know heroes as as movie stars and, and things like that just mm-hmm. to yeah um, make it normal. And uh, I mean, at the very least, right when we, in Weld's interlude, right he shows up and. Pigot talks about how there is an initiative in the PRT, right, to make him more, and in other case, 53 is more palatable, yeah, right? Yeah. Make it more normal. Yeah, there's very, like, and intentional cultivation. Mm-hmm. If you see the PRT, which is, is uh, very complicated to try to view class in this in this way, mm-hmm. but if you view the, the PRT with capes included, with, with heroes included, as a hegemonic class, which, I mean, they kind of are... Um, this that. is, yeah, I mean, it's a little bit complicated because there's multiple kinds of people in there. You know, maybe we could just view them as um, hegemonic classes. Mm-hmm. Um, they, yeah, they are spreading this ideology that we should be in charge because we are good. We are heroes. Heroes save people. Heroes protect the community, mm-hmm. give us our tax dollars, etc. Yeah. Um, I want to point out um, real quick also that, like, the, the, the PRT troopers are not just policemen, right? They are actually, like, paramilitary, basically. They are they are not military, but they... I mean, you know, we see in Nilbog's interlude that they are, like, heavily armed. Yeah, they armed. seem to be, you know, the men in armor, sort of, you know, with the dashes in between, with, like, prepared to fight mm-hmm. whatever. Yeah. Yeah, and, like, I mean, if we if we had that, in our current government, which is kind of mm. a little bit, um, I mean, there's a reaction against that, yeah. right? Of like your everyday, um, you know, law enforcement person should not be outfitted like the SWAT yeah. teams yeah. all the time, right? But the PRT kind of are sort of in that yeah. way. And yet, because of this strong, you know, uh, kind of, if not propaganda, the, the influencing of, of the norm, and because they style themselves as police officers, right, as just another arm of the law, uh, their existence becomes also uh, accepted and, and normal. Because yeah. um, they're sort of... Yeah, so... Uh, they're sort of, like, ahead. sold as, like, protectors, right, of yeah, a threat I mean, that, what that, you know, yeah. people can't face on their own. And so mm-hmm. they they have been created as, as this sort of, like, in between this um, barrier, but something in between mm-hmm. a barrier... What is, that, so mm-hmm. what is that term? 
a buffer. A buffer. Um, uh-huh. Yeah, a buffer that that yeah is meant to protect and kind of prevent. But then at the same time, it's like that concept has been has been naturalized because of the presence mm-hmm. of parahumans and what the PRT has said. Yeah. 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 It, yeah. It's a very complicated nature of um, a rule there because so we have truly. The parahumans are in charge, mm-hmm. right? Alexandra is actually in charge of both the triumvirate and and the protectorate and the the PRT, right? In her alter ego. However, to most people, it looks like the humans are in charge of the parahumans, yes. right? Yeah. So we have this kind of multi layered thing, um, yeah. And of course, we, again, we we see so much of of the PRT's role is just public perception, mm-hmm. right? We they talk about you know branding and cape names and figurines and toy lines and um lunch boxes yeah, there's, there's a lot underwear. of underwear a lot of like material you know reinforcement yeah. of it right yeah uh the heroes are just deployed basically just to as a as a show sometimes right shadow stalker at the mm-hmm. mall yeah. and during Bakuda's bombing yeah um um but okay so that's what i have for this one of course there's there's more examples of of cultural hegemony and its its implications but um that is what we're going to talk about this time i'll probably bring up the the subject again also i just want to just to mention um this is a this is a tangent this is just talking about the the perspective section in in general um i'm kind of running out of theorists to talk about uh so i just want to to say that because so so (laughs) Obviously, there's actually like a lot of people to talk about, but um, we've summarized a lot of the, the, like, the, the concepts. Ones, yeah. yeah, and and part of the problem um, is that a lot of the um, even even larger literary movement movements are it is kind of hard to talk about here with Worm and you know as this purpose of like exploring new ways of using literary mm-hmm. theory because like formalism. We kind of already use that, right? Yeah, um, yeah. And so, you know, we have to do something like bringing a particular concept like the sublime to make it, you know, not just talking about what you, we already accept as natural. Um, structuralism is already a mess. I have explained why I don't want to do that <laughs> yeah, one. Yeah. Um, uh, post-structuralism is, is possible, but of course I've already done that a bit. Um, post-colonialism is, uh, you know, uh, Clarence and I are both white. Yeah. Um, Wild Bow is white. Um, I don't, feel it's really like and it also takes place in america um not that that makes it you know not able to be post-colonial, through or post-colonial. i mean america's a colony um and an empire uh but it yeah it makes it i i don't i don't feel comfortable enough to do that myself without doing a lot yeah, more reading yeah um and then um i don't uh psycho psychoanalytic perspectives uh i don't I don't like either because they focus a lot on Freud. I found some that were beyond or outside of Freud. Uh-huh. Or not outside, okay. but like yeah. have, so have those, you know, kind of sit yeah. in different spaces that are still sort of psychoanalysis um, mm-hmm. that I think I'm going to explore because I really mm-hmm. want to talk about Taylor and self-image. It's like okay. been on my list. Then that would be good. Um, All right. I, I haven't looked at much beyond the, the psychoanalysis stuff that's not Freud because that's the one that shows up in the yeah, textbooks yeah. a lot because they were written Although that when one Freud was much more overlaps accepted. with like some like second and third wave like feminist thought I think so yeah it, like it, that is the other one that we can do a lot yes. in that one's um, definitely it, that's that also been on yet. my list that I haven't kind of pulled mm-hmm. from as much but I have this kind of like list of people that I want to talk about yeah I mean, uh, feminist theory just 
talks a lot about just the body and the mind. Yes. So I think it's very, very useful. Um, yes. And then, of course, Marxism, I, like, again, it's it's pretty useful and um, not not too difficult to, to talk about. But, of course, there's only so many angles I can take before it's like, okay, there's classes of worm. Yeah, we get it. Yeah. So, um, but all right. Uh, so, yeah, I, I'm not entirely sure what uh, I, I mean by this. I just say that I'm not running out of ideas, but... Uh, <laughs> It's definitely getting perhaps, more difficult to think return, of as something unique. We may we may return to particular theories or theorists um, from yeah. like a different angle, you know. Yeah. Like on on like David, you know, if you're working on his hand, maybe now we're working on like his chin or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But okay, that is what we have for perspectives this mm-hmm. week. Um, so we're going to finish off by talking about just our favorite powers from this arc before we we close out. Yeah. So, Clarence, what were your favorite powers okay, this time? so I had a couple of them. First, Barker. And I know I feel like I mentioned this last, like, mm-hmm. you know, podcast, but, like, it's just, it it just made me so terribly happy. And also, I would kind of want that to, like, mm-hmm. mostly, mostly because, <laughs> just be able yeah, to... mostly because in my mind, you know, there's, like, this sweet moment between, like, Rachel and Taylor. And Rachel's like, I know you're going to have a plan. Like, I am I was counting on you arriving and you have this whole thing. Like, I totally believe in you. And mm-hmm. he's, like, in the background, like, cursing is what I am imagining. <laughs> just in the background, just like, Fuck. Yeah, it's just... <laughs> yeah. It's, it's a very amusing image and it makes me happy. Yes, yes, I agree. I agree. Yeah, and then the second one is... Um, I forgot how to say her name, but it's the... Uh, Glastig Wenye. Glastig Wenye. Yes. I'm sure there's a better way to pronounce it, but that's the way that uh, that I do oh. anyway. Oh, so. okay. Well, in your expert opinion of pronunciation, there mm-hmm. you go. Mm-hmm. Glastig Wenye. And, you know, all of these like extra passengers that she seems to cart around. Maybe. I don't know. Mm-hmm. It seems intriguing. And I kind of like her aura. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Neither of them were really like yeah. power focused, I think. It was mostly... Mm-hmm particular individuals and their powers were kind of like a aside but i like them mm-hmm. yeah. yes. yes what about you um so i i have two and they're both shapeshifters um mm-hmm. i'm going to talk about marquis again um there's a particular moment um during that that fight where he mutates his yeah. foot into this kind of ripple of bone mm-hmm. and that was just fascinating yes. to me um it's just the the that it's not just not just like spears and stuff of bone. Like he actually like his entire foot turns into a weapon essentially, mm-hmm. and it like charges forth. And I just yeah, that's that's fascinating. Um, I just the, the image to me is is very uh, visceral is not the term, but like um, I don't know, it's, it feels very physical to me. Yeah, it's kind of like a tuning fork. And then you know, I don't know. I sure, feel like I, fe- I felt it in yeah. my bones when I was reading his yeah, okay. whole thing. You yeah. know, yeah, yeah, yes. Yes. For me, it was like hardening clay. Mm. That's what it, like... Yeah, yeah. Something that was wet just suddenly becoming solid, and then it's like a hard, crumbly kind of... Anyway, Mm. uh, and then the other one was uh, Genesis, of course, because it's just a fascinating thing that just, like, visualizing something, and it it, it comes to life. That's so much creative power. Yeah, yeah. And the fact that you become, uh, you you rest by being Mm -hmm. awake. That's really cool. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, okay, that is what we have for favorite powers. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to go over our themes and theories. Um, so uh, Sarah Penguin did an absolutely like 
wonderful and and thorough. Um, I don't know if essay is quite the right term, but basically uh, they looked at um, you, uh, capitalism, class, and the monetization of powers, as well as various different um, just just aspects of setting and character in and organization in these arcs mm-hmm. of worm. Looking at uh, the city and then how it is post Leviathan, um, how uh, powers are monetized, not just you know of like the 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 cauldron way, but in how like capes are monetized, right? The the um, uh, defiant, um, you know, being monetized in, in underwear and things like that. And, and yeah, yeah. Uh, what are some effects like that uh, from that? Um, and then continuing on to uh, how you know parahumans, you know, might fit as as classes, and um, there's there's a lot. Yeah, uh, it's a, a, a lot. Yeah. Yes, it's it's uh, truly wonderful. Um, so if you, uh, I, I highly recommend people read that and take a look. There's there's just a lot to you know gain from it. Mm-hmm. Um, their comment is under uh, decomposing worm episode four perspectives on arcs nine through fourteen. So yeah, please please check that out. Um, it's just a, a fascinating run through of of so many aspects. I, I really enjoyed it, Sarah Penguin. Thank you for writing it up, and I'm hoping to to pull from it in future discussions yeah. of, um, of of class and, and powers and worm. I think it's really useful. Yeah, it's very like watershed. Mm-hmm. Where it's kind mm-hmm. of like, it has the central idea. Yeah, it has it's a like lot a of different kind of fully thought out iterations. Yeah. Mm-hmm. A lot of stuff coming mm-hmm. together, I think. Um, um, unfortunately, we, we are running out of time, so we're going to rush through here a little bit. Um, but uh, so, so that is what we have for the content this mm-hmm. week. Um, so uh, just to just inform you guys on what else is going on in Doof Media right now, uh, I know I talk about it every week, but I'm very, very excited about it. Uh, the, the FTL um, game club, or Faster Than Light um, game club is uh, next week uh, uh, in, on uh, July the 4th. That is next Saturday. Um, not the Saturday that we're recording. Or the Saturday that just passed because this is coming out a day late on Sunday. Uh. Um so, but I'm I'm very very excited about that. If you haven't played FTL, uh, go just just buy it. It, sh- it should be pretty cheap. I, I think max is fifteen dollars, and it's usually on sale. Um, and it's a really 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 good game. So, um, highly highly recommend. Um, and uh, next week, uh, Doofcast is um, the the Doofcast is covering Psychopass, which is um, a- an anime that I've heard is is pretty good. So this is the mm. the first season of that anime. So if you enjoyed that. Um, Maybe go go check out that episode, and hopefully um, it'll have someone that doesn't hate anime on it, which I think we will be able to excited. wrangle. So, uh, yeah, that's that's always that's always a, an, an improvement. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I love I love hearing Scott and Matt talk about you know ev- everything. Um, it's just helpful to have them have someone there to tell them to to call out some of the good stuff that they don't notice uh, yes. um, because they're not efficient on us. Uh, do you like anime, Clarence? Um, I don't dismiss anything at face uh-huh. value, but I'm mm-hmm. not, I haven't watched a lot of it. Okay. I mean, I will watch it if, you know, other people watch it with me, but I won't seek mm-hmm. it out by myself. I'm going to watch Hal's Moving Castle with you because I actually never finished it. I think I have the DVD. Mm-hmm. It's not mine though. So when you're in the area, uh, come yes. over and we will we will watch it because I think you would very much enjoy the aesthetic. I think I would. So. I really like, I've seen a lot of the animation. I just haven't seen anything mm-hmm. in its entirety. Mm-hmm. Um, also, um, if you like what we do here at Doof Media, 
Um, also consider donating, donating maybe a single dollar per month or whatever else you can afford. It's due to the generosity of our patrons that we're able to create shows like this. You know, patron dollars are what pay hosting fees and how we're able to, like, purchase a microphone and different materials. Recording materials are, like, different sorts of things for us. Mm-hmm. As well as do uh, other little yeah. events, um, uh, like the, the, the fan art contest, which I don't remember when the next one is, but... Keep an eye out. The fan art <laughs> contest. Mm-hmm. Um, you can go to patreon.com slash media and see all the great patron rewards we have. Um, oh, uh, the the one that we should mention this week, of course, is uh, the, the $5 level, uh, the, the Doof Dancer level. Doof Dancer. Uh, because at that level, you get you get access to uh, our Doofin Shills, which uh, Clarence and I just were oh, yeah. on the last one. So, yeah, so if you join at the $5 level, you get to watch a, uh, was like an hour and a half to a two-hour yeah. conversation um, with uh, me and Clarence and Scott and Matt as we just, uh, we ended up talking about Worm a lot, but we it did. was but the, supposed the to be about, you know, all meanders. sorts of things. That was, it, it was a good source, yes. you know. Yes, It was moving. It was moving, yes. Um, which I, I really enjoyed. Yeah, it was a good it was time. Fun. And of course, you get access to every single other um, Doof and Chill that's ever happened before. And there's been a lot of cool ones. Uh, I think the last one, um, we played Left 4 Dead. And um, I, uh, Scott and I were really good at it. Matt and Brian um, put on a good show. Oh. <laughs> so... <laughs> But that was a that was a really good time too, uh, and there's there's plenty of other yeah. ones um, as well. Um, after you read Packed Clarence, which you will do at some point, um, there there was one where they used an AI text generator to uh, basically go through a a packed sort of world dungeon thing. It was a lot of fun. Oh, so that sounds fun. Yes. Yes. Uh, and of course, uh, if you don't um, have have the money to support us, there's plenty of other ways to do so. Uh, you can just you know tell a friend. You can um, just put your uh, phone connected to your speakers and and play it as loud as possible out your window and hope that someone yeah, you know hears the, the title hear and yeah, exactly, exactly. And uh, there's plenty of other things to do. And of course, please consider donating to Wildbo because he is the one that that makes this all possible. Yeah, and we have such like a unique experience with Worm and like with all of these web stories to like be able to interact with Wildbo. Like that's so cool to like be able to like have a conversation. It is. With it the is very very cool. And like, I don't know. It's it's really a un. I I just said a unique experience, but like, mm-hmm. it's really it it makes the world. I think a lot. You know, it, it remains like a living object, you know, a living text. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and yeah, Webbo just does so much. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I keep pausing on, on Pale because I'm, you know, binging Worm. But, uh, man, I'm loving that so much. Um, oh, I, I should also mention um, Wildbo, uh, as of, uh, I think, last night, wrote a uh, entry in uh, Do the Right Thing. So, oh, uh, cool. He, yeah, so he wrote basically, he says, um, considering it a, a sort of teaser, I haven't read it yet, I haven't had the time to, but I understand that it's it's a sci-fi sort of world that, you know, he, he, he is now built out um, very much so. So if you want to go uh, read that, you can go to slash r slash uh, do the right thing, and then in the thread um, for episode 64, 64. Uh, suppress bad... Mm-hmm. Episode sixty four: Suppress Bad East and Goalkeeper. Oh, uh, you can read his his entry. What interesting mm-hmm. words you have! Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
Um, and, and you can read my story there as well. Uh, but okay, that is all we have for y'all this this yeah. week. Next week will be our overview episode, so we'll be reading arcs 18 through 22. Um, and so we'll start taking questions um, for the like questions for Qu- Clarence and like the themes and theories, all of that, in the Reddit thread. Yes, yeah, mm-hmm. uh, which is uh, um, on on. Uh, pair of humans, of course, and, and it should be linked in the description among uh, other places. Um, you could, yeah, send us your questions for Clarence and your themes and theories for that section. Uh, also, we'd love to just hear what you guys thought yeah, of this episode. Yeah, we like it when we hear back from um, you. Mm-hmm. You can also send us an email at decomposing uh, decomposingpodcast at gmail dot com, or um, I don't know, uh, tweet at us or send us a, d- a DM at our Twitter uh, decom- at decomposingpod. Yeah. Haha. Mm-hmm. So that's all we have for y'all this week. Next week, we have our overview episode. We'll be returning to the rhythm of reading. Mm-hmm. Covering arcs 18, Queen, through 22, Cell. Cell. Mm-hmm.